Welcome, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Renegade Joint Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Burgess, professional real estate investor, permaculture and urban farmer, curmudgeon, skeptic, and real estate agent at Renegade Realty Group with Keller Williams. What is Renegade Joint Investors? RDI is a local real estate investment and business group, and we meet monthly right now at Shields in Southfield. That's at 10 Mile and Telegraph if you're in the area. This group is about networking and doing deals, folks. This ain't your grandma's Rhea. No guru bullshit from the front, no smell of stale coffee, been gay, and or disappointment. You know exactly what I'm talking about, those little dark, dingy rooms. RDI is also this podcast where I try and sit down once a week, but it tends to be whenever I got time to do it. Sit down and have interesting conversations with people so you can learn and uh, be entertained at the same time. And if you're listening to this and you ever want to attend any of the local meetings, go to renegadedetroit.com, meetup.com forward slash renegadedetroitinvestors, or facebook.com forward slash Detroit Investment Club. All right, legal disclaimer, in no way, shape, or form should anything that I or any of my guests say today be taken as legal and or investment advice. We highly recommend that before you make any investment decisions, you contact a lawyer and or other licensed professionals, be an adult. Don't sue me. Don't sue them. All right. Time for the Renegade Detroit Investor Show Code of the Week, where I pick a quote that sets a tone for your podcast and also hopefully your week. And this week, I went with a quote from Niall Ferguson or Neil Ferguson. I'm not sure exactly how to say it. The ascent of money has been essential to the ascent of man. Neil Ferguson. The ascent of money has been essential to the ascent of man. And Today's podcast is part one, lenders, and I've got three lenders in here today, and we're going to answer all your lender questions and a bunch of other stuff that's interesting to me and to them. First up, Mr. Joe Randall. Joe's been a residential mortgage loan officer since 2007 and has always had a different way of thinking about residential mortgages. He left industry in 2008 during the economic collapse to return to school and exited college to find the 2011 job market, left him few options. So we returned to the mortgage industry as a processor. After learning the back end of the origination to closing process, he sat out on his own as a loan officer again in 2016 and quickly found real estate investors to be a niche that he could service in a unique way and grow a business around. Finally, in the spring of this year, he bought his first buy and hold rental and recently closed on a fourplex in Detroit near Boston and couldn't be any nearer. He is currently working on and improving. If you want to reach out to Joe, go to mortgagesbyjoerandall.com. Two L's, mortgagesbyjoerandall.com, 810-434-3327. I got Mr. Malcolm Turner. Malcolm Turner of Castle Commercial Capital has been in financial services for over 25 years, while specifically lending since 2004. He founded his firm in 2007, originally as a commercial mortgage brokerage firm. In April of this year, Castle Commercial Capital became a direct private money lender that still brokers loans for transactions we will not fund directly. We have finance apartments, businesses, single-family home, residential investment real estate, and most forms of commercial real estate. He also currently hosts three meetup groups focused on commercial real estate, business credit, and entrepreneurship. He lives in Southfield with his wife of 22 years and their three kids, when not enjoying life as a lender, he serves as a deacon for Greater Emmanuel Church in Detroit. You can reach out to Malcolm, 248-579-8175, extension 1. 
You can email him, Malcolm at commercial or castlecommercialcapital.com. His website, castlecommercialcapital.com. And he's all over. If you go look that up, he's on YouTube, Castle Commercial Capital, and Facebook.com forward slash Castle Commercial Capital. And last but not least, Mr. Yoav Galad. Yoav is half of the husband and wife team that runs Green Block Incorporated. He began investing in real estate in 2004 when he was getting his second bachelor's degree and a house hack before it was a thing. He weathered the downturn and after the recovery, Marcia, did I get that right? Marcia. Marcia. Sorry, Marcia. And Yoav flipped houses, wrote land contract deals, and rehabbed and rented other homes. When someone coincidentally approached the Galads for a loan, they incorporated Green Block and issued their first loan. They are now full-time private lenders with partners in California, Florida, Texas, and investors in 17 states. You can reach out to him. 323, he loves being called to, by the way. 323, just kidding. 323-230-0499. You would prefer an email. And that's Y-G-I-L-A-D at greenblock.com. INC.com. And of course, the website GreenBlockINC for Incorporated.com. First off, I went out like a crazy man with Ryan Breen, who's been on this podcast before, and Jeff Lippel has been on this podcast before. We sat in a fucking boat from like 9 p.m., getting rained on this opening for duck season. So I got no sleep. I shot some ducks and then ran right in here. I think I'll be okay for two or three hours of the podcast. But if I get a little slow or whatever, that's that's why. I'm actually sitting here in wet pants, freezing my ass off. So Did you bring some meat home? Uh, I did, yes. Yes. It's, it's gonna it's, it was a good day. It was a good that's day. That's what counts. Yeah. It was a good day. Is no. season different up north and down here or something? It is, yes. Okay. It is. It certainly is. So opens later down here. And it's actually really early. There wasn't that many ducks out yet. So gotcha. worse the weather gets, the more the more they come down. So before we get into, we got a ton of listener questions, right? Which is awesome. Which, by the way, if you ever want to ask questions, you got to go on Facebook, join the Metro Detroit Real Estate Investors Group, or follow me on Facebook or Instagram, because when I do these podcasts, I put it out to everybody so we can answer all your questions. So if you're not following me there, you're missing an opportunity to ask your questions and get them answered. So I got a ton of questions from people who did just that. But before we get into it, I wanted briefly to go over just individually and you guys, whoever wants to go first, how'd you guys get started and, and lending, right? I always ask this question, how'd you get started in real estate? How'd you get started flipping? How'd you get started investing? Well, in this case, this is just another branch, right? How did you guys uh, get involved in lending? And whoever wants to take it can uh, start first. So Go. Okay, I'll go. Uh, this is Yoav. Um, so I, uh, I remember in my teens looking at a Fortune 500 list, and it became very apparent very quickly that most of the people on that list uh, were real estate investors. Uh, they were much larger scale than I am now or than I ever dreamed of being at that time, but it seemed like it was a good path to, to becoming wealthy. Uh, and so... As the, the quick bio at the beginning said, when I was getting my second degree, I bought a condo that was two beds, and I rented the second bedroom to a kid that was in my class. Uh, went really well. It was 2004. Uh, I turned that into a single-family house, sold it, bought a single-family house. 
uh, rented two bedrooms. Um, money was really cheap and easy to get at the time. So I wound up buying a property, a second property that was also a rental. Uh, unfortunately, 2008 and 9 happened. And so that kind of forced me to pair one of those. Uh, but, you know, I still held the other one, um, managed to keep renting it out and, you know, kept going from there. So um, to segue into today, uh, yeah, somebody approached us for a loan because everybody knew we were looking for flips. Um, we were cash buyers and they said, well, I've got a deal. How about you lend it to me? Uh, and it made sense. The return looked great. They actually offered us more than we could legally charge. Um, but once we started learning about it, you know, we lowered the interest rate so it would be legal, did the loan, and have kept on going from there. And, yeah, now we're just looking to partner with people that, that know what they're doing, that want to continue learning, and that are active, that are regular investors. Well, that's awesome because I know not everybody thinks about getting into real estate necessarily as a lender, but it's another one of those branches that's very viable, right? And, and if you're a real estate agent, you know this too, like your volume as a lender is similar to your volume as a real estate agent. So it's just another lever you can hit. Joe, how do you? Uh, what made you become a lender? So I had a card night, an Uno night with a bunch of friends like 2006 or so. And I had drank one too many monsters one night and couldn't sleep. So I'm just dinking around on the internet, like looking at stuff. And I end up on Yahoo somehow news. And there was an ad at the bottom for this company in Livonia that was looking for salespeople to do mortgages. Those ads work, huh? What's that? Those ads work. I didn't know that. What's that? Those ads work. Uh, apparently. Yeah. You me. clicked on it, right? Yeah. So, I mean, a couple of days later, I was talking to a recruiter at Quicken Loans few days later, I had an offer, and I started about a month later and, you know, went through the grind there, made it about a year and a half. <coughs> I actually started the day uh, that, I was telling you guys this out there, but I started the day that from the big short, the guy goes in and says, I'm going to short mortgage-backed securities. Everybody laughs. January 3rd, 2007. That was my first day in the mortgage industry. So, I don't know. It was just dumb luck and too much caffeine. Thank you, Monster. Malcolm? Um, I came from um, the financial uh, advising business, and uh, they changed the rules and uh, allowed us to do loans. Instead of always referring it out to other people. And I was like, wow, these, this whole lending thing is pretty profitable business. This is more profitable, actually, than the financial advisory business. You know, and... Um, Went and worked for a, a mortgage lender, but because of my history of having a fiduciary relationship for my clients, I kept having this conversation with my manager about how come you didn't take this first time home buyer and put them in one of these variable rate $300,000, you know, mortgages that were going to adjust later, right? And I'm like, yeah, this is first time house, FHA was the best deal for him. Aren't we supposed to do the right thing? For our clients, oh, there you go, Malcolm. Do, talking about that, do the right thing stuff again. And after about the third time, I was, you know, I was getting irritated, you know. And I was talking with uh, my pastor about it one day in his office, and saying, you know, why is doing the right thing, you know, the wrong thing? You know, I'm making them money. I'm not making them as much money as they would like, right? Because I'm doing the right thing. But long story short, he says, well, if you were going to design a mortgage company, what would it look like? I goes, first, it'd be commercial. And then here's why. And I went boom, boom, boom. And then I would set it up this way. And I put an office over here. And I would do this and do that. And he's like, man, that's pretty awesome. Let's do it. I was like, wait a minute. I thought we were just talking 
like hypothetical. He's like, no, you're like the best guy I know. I trust you like a brother, you know. And I'm like, okay. So just like that, we decided to set up Castle Commercial Capital. And that's how it uh, it got founded. Unfortunately, a year later, he passed away of cancer. Oh, so, you know, I went from a partnership to a solo owner. Um, but and then earlier this year, we transitioned to being a lender ourselves. And in that, in what I like about commercial, it's straightforward. It's the numbers. It's the math. It's not how wonderful the kitchen is or how lovely the the neighborhood looks or where the schools are. It's the math. Does it make me money or does it not make me money? And so that's how I got in got in lending and love it. That's awesome. It's interesting how sometimes just one person or one ad or somebody just asking something yes. sends you in a completely different direction than you otherwise might have gone. That's why I tell people to pay attention to the opportunities around them. Because sometimes I think people don't realize how many potential opportunities are around them all the time. And they just have their mind closed to it. So it's and cool your pastor's like, and that he shop- tricked you. He's like, what would, how would you do it? How would you? Oh, by the way, let's do that. Yeah, he kind of punked me a little bit there. That shop is closed down now. They had over 100 loan officers, the one I quit that was doing residential lending. And then when the bust happened, they popped. They're gone. Yeah, just like that. Those people who try and make short-term money always fail long-term because you do right by by your customer, your client. You always make more money long-term. Right? That's right. They're always thinking too too freaking short. Always, always. So just so people listening know, so Joe is like a traditional lender, right? And then Yoav and Malcolm are like a hybrid, right? They're not really private, but they're more business, but they're certainly not traditional. Not that they can't do certain things, but we have a a good variety right here. Mm -hmm. So when we go through and we start talking about it and asking these questions, you're going to get three very different looks and well some will be similar i'm sure but you're going to get three looks at it right which is why i like doing it like this i'm going to start with jokes i just want to get it out of the way a lot of the questions that were asked were of course about fha va Mm -hmm. conventional right um so let's just knock it out right now so we can get to the to the, the real question. Yeah, yeah. Stuff. yeah. The they, they want to know, right? Yeah. They, they, and if they've never done this before, they have no idea. We all know what we're talking about, right? right. So yeah, let's just take if, a minute. If you don't know the rules, you don't know the rules. Yeah. It's just like anything else. Yeah. Um, I mean, FHA, VA, I'm sure there's somebody that's going to listen to this that'll pull off a house hack deal where they do one of those two programs. But, like, that's the only use I really see. So, like, I have a feeling most of the questions you're going to ask me, and, you know, I peeked at the list, of course, as I was looking at things last night. But most of this is all going to be talking about conventional financing. Yeah. You can't do an investment property on FHA or VA with the exception of doing what's called a streamlined refinance. But you have to have previously had an FHA or VA loan on that property to do a streamlined loan under one of those two programs. Meaning you would buy and occupy it as your personal residence for some period of time or some other, does it have to be specific to that property or any property? It has to be specific to that property. Yeah. And so like, yeah, you would do exactly like what I'm doing in Glenn. You go in there you live in there for, you know, whatever period of time, the minimum, how long you want to live there. And, you know, then you move on to the next one and leave buying the property as a rental 
you know, in that scenario on an FHA or VA loan, you would be able to refinance it if you wanted to, but you're not going to get any cash out. And everything I'm probably going to be asked about as far as a loan is going to be about how do I buy this as an investment property or how do I cash out this investment property from this group? So FHA and VA are like a 1% of the time thing. Yeah, that's the people buying your flips. Yeah. Probably going to be using FHA. Your well-done flips. Probably going to be doing mm-hmm. do VA. Do not do yeah. your lipstick, BS, no. hack job. Three and a half inch tread overhangs on your stairs that are a tripping hazard on an FHA or VA sale. Like, they're a great loan for those type of buyers, especially for first timers. I mean, for veterans, it's an amazing loan product, but it's, there's a health and safety inspection there too. So if you do a hack job, if you have shifted concrete, that's a trip hazard. If your handrails are janky, they're going to look in your attic. They're going to look in your crawl space. They're going to ch- look at the foundation. They're going to have to get in the garage. So, I mean, like, if you're just doing a dirtbag flip, sell it conventional, sell it cash, sell it on land contract. If you're doing it right, if you're doing it clean, yeah, sell it to one of those guys. You'll probably get a better value out of it. You'll have to jump through some more hoops, but, you know, you deal with some pain, you make some more money. Yeah, they take a little longer to close. And for those listening, FHA and VA are also government mm-hmm. underwritten. Actually, they're American because they're with our tax dollars, right? But the government decides yeah. what the rules are, right? Conventional, the lender decides. Um, no, There are some still- rules, but... Uh, conforming, at least, which yes. is Fannie Freddie stuff, like... I mean, they're government-sponsored enterprises, so are they? is it the government deciding? That's, there's that whole question. But for conventional and con, like conforming financing in particular, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, you're looking at their manual. Lenders can add extra rules, but right. they can't take them away. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. All right. Then we got Yoav, and you are strictly private. Correct. Yeah, we yeah. are. We are strictly private. All the money is either ours or partners, um, but none of it is government. None of it is any commercial bank in your neighborhood. Uh, yeah. And you, besides having to follow the laws of the land, you make the rules depending yeah. on you. And, um, and, and let's talk about that because people yeah. also ask both of you. So I'm going to get this out of the way, just like with Joe. They want to know about your programs and what you're looking for, and they're going to want to know about yours, too. So I want to make sure we get it out in the beginning, and then everybody hears it, and then we'll get to it. So how do you do it? What are your qualifications? What are you looking for? Uh, Our qualifications are largely related to the deal. Um, We don't care too, too much about credit scores. We do have a a floor for credit. Um, You do need a credit above 600, Um, but... You know, it doesn't affect the uh, the rate that you pay, uh, except in the case of one product of ours, which is a 30-year loan. Um, but if you're flipping or if it's a buy and hold or a cash out refi, uh, your credit score won't affect the rate that you're, that you're charged. Um, and so what we really want to see is, are things like comps. Uh, if it's a rental, rental comps. Uh, photos of the property and inspection report. It's really largely deal based. So if you've got a property in, in Detroit or wherever, cause we lend throughout Michigan, uh, that will absolutely not pass a conventional 
loan test. You know, it's got to have a roof. It's got to have whatever. Uh, we don't care about that stuff. So if you're buying our minimum loan is $10,000. So if you're buying something for $10,000, we will fund it. Um, yeah, it, 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 as long as it conforms to our standards, which are all about the property, uh, we'll fund it. What about new investors? You work with new investors. Yeah. And that's again, whether you've done one deal, zero deals, a hundred deals, doesn't affect your rate either. Uh, you know, a lot of people kind of take exception to the fact that we do want a lot of documentation about the property. Uh, but because we started out in this business as flippers, you know, back in 2013, 2014, uh, we know what things cost. We know how long things take. Mm -hmm. And so if you give us an estimate for a property that needs a roof, needs full appliances, needs a furnace, all that, and your estimate is 3000 bucks, well, you know, we're, we're going to be like, hey, you know, you're, I think your math is a little off. This loan is flatly rejected. Either come back to us for real right. or, you know, find someone else, you know, who will fund this. Uh, we're in this business to make money, obviously, but it's got to be win-win. And even if someone can pay the interest and pay the points, they got to win too. We don't want to do deals that end up badly for our, for our borrowers because we want repeat borrowers. So it's got to be win-win for us. Well, if it's bad for the borrower too, it could potentially be exactly. bad for you. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. A lot of people don't don't consider that. So when you're looking at the, what are you looking for in the asset as far as because they're going to ask specifically, right? How do you lend? What, how much do you lend? So let's go with a hypothetical hundred thousand dollars because the math is always easy when okay, we do the hundred thousand totally. dollars. And I'll do the same to you, Malcolm. Right? <laughs> Keep the math simple for us, right? So no calculators here. If somebody brought you a flip, what would that look like on the, the absolute max end of it, right? The most you would lend to kind of run that down. And if so, it's a little wiggly, just say, you know, all right, explain yeah. it. So on a $100,000 loan, well, on any flip loan, we'll lend up to 75% of the purchase price, 75% of the rehab through draws. Um, so... You Explain what a draw is. Just, okay. We yeah. got, got first time around here. I'm like, what draw? Draw what? So basically it means we fund the purchase, the 75% of the purchase when it closes, uh, and we fund the 75% of the rehab as the rehab is ongoing. So say you have a $100,000 property and say the rehab is going to cost 50000 just for number's sake. Say the ARV is two fifty. So there's enough meat on the bone there. Um, on the hundred thousand, we'd lend seventy five. On the rehab of fifty, we'd lend thirty seven thousand five hundred dollars. So the total on that is one hundred twelve thousand five hundred dollars out of one hundred fifty. So you got to bring thirty seven five to close, um, or for part of the rehab too. Anyhow, I think I'm off topic. The draws are basically, um, you know, what you're pulling from us while the rehab is ongoing. Uh, so you've got milestones that we set up and those milestones are like, I'm putting on a roof. That's going to cost me $12,000. Um, and so once that's done, we'll release part of that 37,500. So we'll release say 15,000 or 12,000 or 10,000, whatever it might be. Uh, and then it needs a kitchen and two bathrooms. So once that's complete, we release another part of the money. That's what draws are. That's how draws work. Mm -hmm. uh, some places charge for them. We don't. Um, and then on a loan like that, you know, it's, uh, it's, 
Where was I going? <laughs> That's okay. Sorry. You're you're explaining how your your program works, oh, right? right? The right, maximum right. they got to yeah. So on a, on a rehab, it would be seventy five percent of purchase, seventy five percent of rehab through draws, uh, and you know, hopefully, you do know what you're doing and you do it quickly. Uh, our our motto is get in, get out, get paid. Uh, a lot of first timers do underestimate how long things take. They underestimate the the scarcity of really good, hardworking, honest contractors. Always, that's always a problem. Always, always yeah. a problem. I mean, for us as well, when we were flipping, uh, everything always takes longer than you expect. So please budget that. Whether you're borrowing conventionally or through a private lender or whatever, uh, it's going to cost more and it's going to take longer. Always, unless you have your own crew and you've been doing this for 10 years. Um, yeah, I mean, that's something to watch out for. Do you, do they got to make monthly payments? Are there no payment yeah. options? So or? basically the way we structure it is you come to close, we bring 75% of the purchase. You've got to pay points, uh, which is kind of the cost of borrowing the money. Uh, on all of our deals, basically we charge three points. The interest rate does vary and that's what you pay month to month. Uh, some lenders are okay with taking their interest on the back end when you sell the property. We're not one of those lenders. Uh, we do require you to pay every month. Um, and if you don't pay on time, there are late fees. Uh, we want you to pay on time. We don't want to make money off of late fees. It's a headache for us. It's a headache for our borrowers. Um, yeah. So, Got to give them the hammer though, right? Carrot, carrot and the stick. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know. We're in business to make money. Everybody else doing this is in business to make money. Like, right. if you don't pay for the product, you know you're you're gonna you're gonna suffer the consequences. And really, like, you know, it's a strange way to think about it. But money is a product. You go to you go to Lowe's or Home Depot to buy nails or wood or whatever. You're buying a product. You know, if you're using someone else's money, you're you're borrowing a product. What about length of time for the loan? Like how long do you go? What's the longest you do? What's the shortest you do? Just give people uh, an we idea. We do transactional. So I guess that could be an hour. Yeah. Uh, but on our flips, it's about, it is a year. On buy and holds or cash outs, it's up to two years. Uh, and like I mentioned, we do have a 30-year rental program also, uh, which is actually cheaper than our other programs. Um, but it's got to be a long-term hold. And that one, unlike our other loans, carries prepayment penalties, uh, which aren't that steep. But still, I mean, if you're buying or borrowing on a 30-year loan, don't pay it off in two months because it's not what you need. Um, yeah. Got it. And you'll do first-timers, experienced people, yeah. whole, whole game. Anybody that has a good deal, we'll, we're happy to fund it. Awesome. Malcolm. Yes, I know you got programs, right? <laughs> I do. So we talked about it. So explain to the listeners your programs and how it looks. And you can use any hypothetical example you would like to make it easier for you to explain. Well, I was thinking, um, you know, it's funny. Uh, you mentioned Glenn. Yeah. I still live on Glenn. Did you? Yeah. yeah. That's the fourplex we just closed with Todd. Yeah, I still, I still live on Glenn when I was like seven years old. Yeah, no, I'm um, fighting with DT about that alley right now. Great, great neighborhood. Um, anyway, um, I, I agree with you. I've, you know, my mentor in the business said that our job as lenders is we sell money in America. Yeah. You know, and that's why there's no greater job than selling money in America because everybody wants to make money 
and it takes money to make money, mm-hmm. you know. But we're concerned about not losing money. So our first, like any good investor, our first priority is not lose money. Then it's like, okay, how much am I making on money? And people will come to me with, with hey, I got a great deal, you know. And it's like it's all risk. I've never, I got this call yesterday. A guy wants to buy a ten unit apartment building, um, and he's never done it before. And I'm like, okay, well, have you done flips? You know, have you got rental property? Oh no, I haven't done any of that either. You know, I say, okay, so you've never owned real estate ever in your life? No. Okay, it, you know, credit wise, blah, blah, blah. well, no, that's not that hot either. So it's like, okay. Let me guess, he doesn't have a shit ton of money either. No. Okay, yeah, that's a lot of risk and, right and there. And his job is well documented, and he can afford the payment without the rent. So you know what I? So you know what I told him? <laughs> I said, one, you need partners. You know, so what you have to do—that's good advice, right there—to make a deal. You just work, didn't tell him no. You actually? No, I didn't like, tell yeah. him no. I gave him some guidance. I was yeah. like, you know, you have to bring a lot of value to the deal. So you're going to have to find the deal, price the deal, negotiate the deal, where the person with the money and the experience and the credit is doing nothing, right? You need to go to some meetups, meet some people, find out what other people are doing, and get yourself educated. And by the way, we've got a meetup next week on financing. You need that meeting badly. He's like, I got you, Malcolm. I'll be there. You know, and that's one of the reasons that on our end, we're a lender and a broker. So rather than telling someone no, as a lender, guess what? I can't do this deal. You know what? Maybe I have another capital source that will finance deals that we won't do because we won't finance everything, right? And getting to programs is where a good fit with what you do, Yoav. Our minimum loan is at 75000 So we're, you know, we're a little higher. Um, we will do on fix and flips. We'll do 90% of the purchase, 100% of the rehab. Okay, so, <coughs> excuse me, I got a deal. As you're going through the numbers, I just get, got a clear close on a deal. So I got those numbers fresh in my brain. Guy bought a, a property, 73000 was the purchase price, right? So we're going to finance 65000 of that purchase. His rehab is like forty eight. We're going to finance all of that. Okay, his ARV is like 190, so it's a really good deal. You know, so it meets within well within our our guidelines of a good deal. Makes sense for everyone. Is this a duplex on Glen Court? <laughs> There's a guy doing like almost that exact same deal across the street from no. me. No, no, that'd be a real small world if that was. That the would case, be a right? real small world. For that. <laughs> Wait a second. <laughs> Do you have a credit requirement or anything no. like that as well? Or? We do, and but you know. I've never had a deal die on credit, to be frank. It dies because of the appraisal. Yeah. Or the scope of work is crap, yeah. going to Yoav's point. Yeah. Where it's like, come on, this ain't, this is nowhere near realistic. Yeah. Um, the way our draw schedule works, like, for example, we let the investor pick what his draw schedule is going to be so he can decide. So, like, in the case I, I uh, gave earlier, he's going to do four draws, you know, so he'll take out 12000 Excuse me. He'll do twelve thousand of the work, then come to us. We actually have an inspector come out, make sure the work was actually done, 
That's always important. <laughs> always important, <laughs> right? <laughs> Everybody remembers when they only did the front of the roof for the appraisal picture for back in the day. Right? <laughs> That's why you can't do draws based on pictures. Hey, roof's done. Back they only did the front half of the roof, not right? The back, right? Yeah. So we sit an inspector out. Uh, we do charge a small fee uh, uh, for that. It's not uncommon. Yeah, yeah it's not uncommon. Oh, smart. You know, the inspector comes out. Yeah, it was done. We released the draw. And then the, he does the next 12000 worth of work. Inspector comes out. We release the draw until it's finally, you know, pay, paid off. Um, our max loan is like $1.5 on a single family. So, you know, we'll do, you know, obviously quite a large project. We also do Texas, Florida, um, as well as Michigan and Ohio. Okay. So also not just in this state. How long do you do the fix and flip? Your fix and flip? Um, the time period? Yeah. What's the length? Um, it depends on your project. It can be as short as six months. And we'll go, you know, six months, 12 months, 18 months, 24 months. Hmm. You know, and then we have a long-term rental project, uh, or product, excuse me, as well, that's fixed 30-year. Yeah. Um, rates are dropping like a rock um, on, on those products as well. Yeah. So they're they're a pretty good deal. All right. And is that everybody's – obviously, that's quick. If you have more questions, that's why I have the contact information. We want to make sure we get to your questions. We want to give you enough to know kind of what flavor and variety they're doing. I recommend you call and speak to all three. They're all good dudes, and they're all interested in helping you out. So if you have really nitty-gritty specific, go find a deal and submit it, and then you'll get – answers real quick right so well, and our products can also work together like i pay off a lot of hard money loans yes mm-hmm. for like you mm-hmm. know effectively it's a rate and term refinance for a bird that's right but you know typically hard money rates are going to be higher and residential rates are going to be cheaper so it's just very common that i'll be handing a hard money lender effectively a check at closing and you know they get their money back and that's the funding for your next deal and yoav and malcolm you guys are like Seven percent to like twelve to fifteen percent ish, depending on the we're risk. We're sort of and, uh, getting to um, Joe's point. We're sort of in between yeah. hard money and a bank. That's why I had you guys. Yeah, on. Yeah. yeah. We're sort of we're not as you know we don't do five points at fifteen percent interest. You guys are you more know? flexible. Yeah, our typical fix and flip um, is going to be two to three points depends on the deal and the rate's going to be somewhere between 10 to 12 at the most you know average is probably you know 11 or just under yeah we need to is that like medium money or like we because there's like soft money and hard money what do we call the stuff in between (laughs) you know the term hard money actually comes because it's hard equity and so that's why it, it's called hard money. Oh, that see, I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, I thought it was because right. okay. the, it's not because it's more difficult or it's more expensive. It's just because it's tied to a hard equity asset. Ah, see, right. I learned something new every day. Exactly. I'm not exactly. A yeah. Our underwriting on fix and flips is pretty, pretty easy. Um, it's comparable to hard money. We pretty much look at the property. You know, we look at our, we will do new investors, obviously as well as experienced investors. Um, but if you got to, you know, it's, it's the property. If the property works, you will do the deal. Yeah. You know, it's not as we don't care about tax returns. We have to look at bank statements. You know, we don't have a reserve requirement, which is different 
from a lot of lenders that, that compete with us. Yeah, really? I, th- I think we're actually pretty yeah. similar because, yeah, everything you just said is pretty much the same as us. Well, that's why I wanted you guys on. I'm going to yeah. do a private lender, like just like one person lending their own money, and I'm going to have a couple, two, three people on for that part. But you guys are like kind of in between, and all three of you are actually investors and have invested and have done things before too. Mm-hmm. So when you call these guys – you're not just calling some some but twenty four year old who's getting paid fourteen dollars an hour to like right. these these people have actually done it before. Too. And, and so. you know, full and fair disclosure, you know, I don't invest in multi. Well, half of our deals are probably multifamily apartments, okay, and that and, and other commercial property. You know, because we'll do SBA loans on occupy stuff, that kind of thing. Um, but I don't invest in single family residential fix and flips. Or multifamily, you know, and that's just because I, I ran into this issue uh, very early on in my career. I don't want to have any perception of competition, per se, with my investors where they're afraid to bring me a good deal because I may you – because know, I will always make money, more money as an investor yes. than I will as a lender. For sure. It's funny you do that because I right, did the please. same thing on the wholesale side when I became an agent going after. I was like – I really took the foot off the gas. I quit sending out postcards. Doesn't mean I won't wholesale a deal if somebody comes. Right. Hey, I got this great deal, or they call, and I I still get them, but I'm not directly competing with them, mailing to the same houses, doing the same things, and actually for that exact reason, I don't think anybody would think I would do that. But why even have the question, right? Just yeah. Why even have the question? Why even have the question? my invest personally, we do triple net lease properties, single tenant credit lease properties. That's a whole nother bag. Yeah, we might have a podcast we'll on that sometime. That, say though. that. Yeah. That's a whole nother. We'll say that for another podcast like potentially. Yeah. We could do three hours on that. That's pure mailbox money right yeah. there. Man, can I jump Holy in on Walker. something that Absolutely. you kind of mentioned? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think that there's a lot of benefit, whether you use Malcolm or Joe or myself uh, as a lender. Because we are doing the deals, as you said a minute ago, and I've found that that some people actually take offense when we're like, "This deal is no good," mm, um, yes. because you know you forgot to account for this, or these numbers are off, or whatever. Mm-hmm. But as just general advice for any investor out there who goes to a lender and says, "This this deal, you might want to think about twice. We're not going to lend on it," because these are people that actually know what they're doing. To some degree, they're experts. I mean, I'm learning every day. I'll be the first to admit it. But I'd like to think I know a little bit. And I'm sure Malcolm and Joe do too. And if and if you go to a lender and if you go to two lenders and three lenders and four lenders and no one says yes, you know, you Your might want to just walk away. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. yes. Um, even if one tells you no, I mean, really think long and hard about whether or not you want to do it because they're not going to lend on it. That means there's no money for either you or them to make on it. That's a really thin deal at best. Yeah, if everybody tells you no, either you're a genius or you're wrong. And statistically, you're very likely to be wrong. And you're not a genius. Very, very likely not a genius. Uh, I've seen people chase stuff on that, like almost delusional. Um, Some for like years. Yeah. Yeah. Especially with their shitty tax auction properties, right? Trying to get people to like lend on them and they won't quiet title them and they need more work than they're worth. And they live way to fuck out of state somewhere and they've never been here. It's like, nobody's going to give you money, man. Like not, not on that one. 
You know, you got to go get something that somebody's not terrified of and they just won't take it in. So that's excellent. Thank you, Yoav. Well, sometimes you got to, you know, it's like, listen, the lender's your friend. Yeah. He's doing due diligence. He's asking questions you didn't think to ask. Going a step up. If it stress tests, fine, great. If it doesn't pass a stress test of a lender's due diligence, then it's probably not a deal that you should do. You know, and I've had deals, and I'm sure you've had this as well, where somebody will come with a deal and it's no. And they'll go around the world and come back to you with the same exact deal a year later. You know, I've had a multifamily where they'll come back two years later. Deal still sucks. And And it's like, okay, you know what? You were right. Okay, so now I'm ready to put some more money in or now I'm ready to be more realistic. But when I first told them no two years ago, they're like, oh, you're crazy. You're nuts. You guys are way too conservative. And they had to go out in the marketplace and get beat up a little bit for reality to knock them in the head. That's the way it is, man. And time is your enemy. I mean, if you hold something for that long and you're still holding it, like, man, how much have you spent on taxes, on insurance, on maintenance, hopefully? Like, man. Or fees, or fees yeah. to and other people to do it, look at a deal just to tell you no. And that's not also to say the first opinion is going to be the right one. I right. Mean, there's plenty of times that second opinion is actually better in both directions. Sometimes the first person is too pie in the sky that's looking at it. Sometimes they're too low on it. Mm-hmm. All right. I think we got it out, folks. This was just like a skim here right they can email you stuff they can talk to you so like your really in-depth questions about their very specific loan products that they have reach out to them and they will spend all the time explaining it all right so i want to get to the questions we got we got lots of questions all right i'm going to start with mr steve lundo what types of documents or vehicles are best to use in order to close a deal in the same fashion as an assignment versus having to take title and close, which costs a lot and eats into profit and sometimes kills deals? So for people listening, what Steve is talking about with an assignment is where you sell the contract. If you've been listening for a long time. You know what that is, right? Many... Most, I would say, lenders don't like paying assignment fees, which means if you if your buyer is using, especially like a more traditional lender, right, or like some sort of government product mm-hmm. or something like that conforming, um, that's a problem. And you'll have to use like Yoav or Malcolm for what they call transactional funding, same day, right, where you actually buy it and then sell it the same day, right? So that's what... Steve is talking about, and he's asking for what potential alternatives or vehicles or other things out there can be used instead of having to double close a property and use transactional funding. Anybody got anything on that? I would, I defer to Joe. Um, For us, you know, if we come across something like that, we don't mind paying uh, an assignment fee. We just consider it part of the purchase price. So for us, it's not a big deal, but yeah, for me, that's a huge problem. I've had that come up actually really before I got big into working with investors before I really knew what a ABBC closing was. Um, The best answer I have found is to have the intermediary person, like the wholesaler, basically, if they're licensed, list them as a realtor and pay them a commission. 
Like I like that. So that's like if you're if you're a real estate agent, if you're licensed as a real estate agent, instead of assignment fee, call it a commission, and then it slides right through it, right? Yeah, and I mean, I don't know exactly how it works, but I think with Ron, you would only end up paying like five hundred dollars more for that, wouldn't you? Yeah. 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 Okay. Is that not, I don't know exactly how it works with realtor commission, but it's kind of the vibe I got to it. Yeah. It's not, it, well, and especially if you cap and all that, like, why would, why would you not do? I put a, I even put my wholesale deals through so I can count the volume against everybody else. Cause I'm going to cap anyway. Right. So right. why not get, get counted for, for the volume? I'm playing a different game, folks. And the, the real estate agent game, you got to play the volume game because that's kind of how you get noticed by other, people up further up the real estate uh, agent food chain right it's all about volume i'm sure it's the same on the mortgage yeah that's lenders want volume from me but i do units because one i love learning about investment myself and this is how i learn but two i just like helping investors because i think a lot of the people i run into actually want to make these areas better and Mm -hmm. it's going to take private investment like that to fix a city like detroit in particular or flint yeah Mm-hmm. You capitalist pig, Joe. I'm gonna. You, it's recorded. It's now on here. You can never back out of it. You can never change your mind. I recorded oh. it right here. You said we. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, uh, <laughs> um, Let's not go there today. Yeah, uh, and obviously, Malcolm, do you care about? Assignment? No, yeah. I don't care. I don't yeah. like you. Have it doesn't make a difference to us. Yeah. So really, I I know one lender that will actually do assignments and it's conventional only um and it still has to pass every other strict rule that you just heard from everybody else here as far as the asset is concerned right so that part doesn't go out the window all the numbers still have to make sense but it's pretty it's pretty rare so sorry steve not a lot of not a lot we can offer on that one just a little bit i'd be interested to talk to that lender see how they're phrasing it doing it see if it's something i can figure out somewhere else i can hook you up mm-hmm. with her yeah cool. i closed i closed one with her i was very skeptical of course i was like yeah right because this has been like it's like a unicorn right <laughs> yeah every time people like, oh do it and then you can't and I'm like Phew. so i'm like okay i'll try it because i'm a yeah, sucker no, i have no I, I have no problem going to upper underwriting management and saying i want to do this yes well, that'd be cool because that would that would make my life really cool too. So, yeah. little inside thing. All right, next question. Matthew Cole asked, "How do you see the lending process changing over the next twelve months, assuming we see a market slowdown?" This is kind of like just so. Right now, if you're just listening to this podcast, it's uh, October two thousand nineteen, right? So, just I, I don't think, know when you're I tuning think this in. One more matters to them because they're more asset focused, whereas I'm general picture. Yeah. I don't honestly, I don't really see a big difference. A recession is going to happen. It's just a matter of when. And the truth is, by the time everybody realizes we're in it, we're already going to be on our way out of it. You know, by the time it's that obvious. So uh, right now, our I just had a, a ton of revisions with our investment fund on some of our loan products. They're getting looser, not getting tighter. There's no shortage of availability of money. That is what causes restrictions to come on when it's harder to get and they get tighter, then they get more restrictive. Right now, there's just so much capital out there. You know, I don't really see it changing that much. Maybe FICO's, like our minimum FICO is 600. You know, maybe my investors will say, okay, you know, we need to take that to like 640 or 650. But I don't really see it changing that much. Yeah, because if there's a recession or 
properties take a downturn, then I'll be reflected in the appraisal, which then covers your butt then there too. Right. So, right. Yeah. And, and the thing I think a lot of people don't think about was the last recession was an anomaly. What happened in 2010 and nine and eight, that's, there's never been a recession like that since the depression. Typical recession is, you know what? It slows down a little bit. Prices come down a little bit. Rates go up a little bit. Days on market go up a but little bit. A little bit, but yeah. property still moves, money still moves, and you just go through it. Yeah. Now, last time around, we had a few trillion dollars worth of assets tied up that everybody thought were amazing investable bonds called mortgage-backed securities. And, I mean, frankly, they were built on crap. Yeah, garbage. I remember like looking at the guidelines for what are called Alt-A programs and mm-hmm. what are now known as subprime programs. And I just looked at it and I was like, who the hell wants to lend somebody 100% of the purchase price when they have 580 credit, just got out of foreclosure, and oh yeah, they were rolling 30-day lates for two years. Right. But they were letting them do it. I mean, I never wrote one of those, but just they were around for so little in my career. But that was the real problem was nobody knew like how to value these assets and you had one of the major economic markets in this country just in complete turmoil and everybody just shut down. It was like the financial markets were constipated. Yeah, well, I remember when they turned it off too, at least in Detroit. It was July 2007. I know it was 2009 everywhere else for the most part, but in Detroit, because I was here and my spigot went er, 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 just like that. Done. A month later, lenders phone do 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 this lumber is no longer in sir it it was like a tsunami that just like just came in and just wiped we were talking about that before the podcast started you know i was a broker back then on the commercial side day after lehman brothers declared bankruptcy you know 30 percent of my lenders were gone yeah because they were funded by lehman and no one knew it you know and it was just a a hot mess But I think the other side of it was for the first time since probably the 30s, you had lenders competing in the real estate market because all these lenders had pages and pages and pages of real estate that they're trying to dump. Thousands. I remember at one point there was over 3,000 REOs just in Detroit. Exactly. I think it was over 7,000 if you went all metro Detroit. And they... Unfortunately, like a good chunk of them all went on the market within like a year, year and a half, which if you think about supply versus demand. Exactly. And then you shut off the financing and you make it a cash only deal, which it was for like a year and a half, two years. Exactly. A liquidity trap. Yeah. So that, and that's why that's not going to happen again. Cause you're not, you know, you're not going to have the, the, the financial market, you know, dumping thousands of properties on the market competing yeah. with investors and there's no money. I mean, we're not doing anything nearly as crazy as we were back exactly. then. Exactly. Like I remember doing stated income to 68% of debt income ratio. That was a Fannie Mae program on full doc. They had an alt sub doc type and it would just come back with what's called a verbal verification of employment, which was call work. Hey, Bob still work there. Cool. Thanks. Or you get a letter from the client CPA if they're self-employed and you don't even look at their tax returns. Now it's full doc and you're like 45, 50% of your gross income. So like two changes there. One, prove to us you can afford this. Like there's a law called ability to repay for the type of loans I do. 
And then, um, you know, two, we reined in, like, how much we'll let you spend effectively. But to something Malcolm was saying, he was talking about things shut off. It was everywhere. I remember I got an email when I was working at Quicken, July, August of 2007, and it was, these programs are discontinued. The in-process in pipeline will not be closed. Mm -hmm. Just, your loans are dead. Yep. Yeah, and it happened just like that overnight, right after Lehman Brothers, when IndyMac went. That was a big one for Quicken. Yes, it was. Yeah. Yes, it was. All those option arms, not option arms, uh, the hybrid option arms that just went away that everyone Well, in the, in the way the lending business works... You know, we're a lender, right? Malcolm Turner is not funding your loan out of his pocket, right? I have investors, okay? My investors are looking for a return on their money, okay? We have parameters as for what we're lending on, okay? But if their money stops, then my money stops. It's like musical chairs, you know? And when, and, and back in, in that moment in time, you know, the government was trying to, you know, figure out where the bottom was. Yeah. 20 people in two chairs, right? Yeah. It was 20 people in two chairs. And so when lenders couldn't figure out, okay, if I'm going to loan this money out, usually it's going to get replaced from someplace. If I don't know, I'm going to get that money back someplace. I'm going to stop lending. And everyone started hoarding cash. And that's where you had basically all lending stopped, mm -hmm. you know, during that time frame, you know. So, but we're not going to, we're not going to have that happen again. It's nowhere near to that extent. Yeah, I certainly don't think the government will ever allow that many foreclosures to all be put on the market again at the same time. Because from 2009 through almost 2012, there was a time when Fannie, Freddie, and all these people, in order to keep them from going on the market, sold them on the back end and bulk to institutional and private investors. Mm -hmm. That way they weren't listed. Mm -hmm. They weren't out there. They came with some restrictions on that, right? Mm -hmm. um, some you had to buy before they were foreclosed. Some you bought in redemption. Some were already foreclosed, yada, yada. Some were occupied. Some were vacant. But I actually did a few of those. Steve did a lot of those, and there are people who did even more. So I think they figured out their mistake pretty quick, right? And they realized, wait a second, we really shouldn't – We Six that six seven thousand in one area all at once, so I don't think they'll ever do that part again. Even if for some reason we end up in the same situation, we won't. Probably at least, unfortunately, maybe I'm giving them too much credit, but it's, they've been saying that for four hundred years. We won't end up in that situation again. Think in our lifetime. Yes. I don't think it'll be that bad in our maybe right at the end of our lifetime lifetimes. I don't think it'll be that bad again. Maybe for like kids and grandkids. Like yeah. think about like the depression. That was like a full life cycle. Yeah, it was like what three generations too. So yeah. yeah, it was my grandpa did it, and then he had my mom, and then me. So yeah. I was the third. Right. I, I I tell you something that I worry about relative to the industry is the effect long term of student loan debt. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah. Student loan debt has eclipsed mortgages. It's crushing people's credit. It's crushing people's credit. And where it's going to affect the real estate business is these 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds cannot get mortgages because they come in to meet with guys like us and they want to get a loan or they want to get a mortgage on a house. And like, listen, you got a $900 a month mortgage. It's called University of Michigan. Yeah. yeah. That MBA you went back to school for. 
you don't have the debt to income ratio and you cannot get out of student loan debt. Yeah, you can't you can't bankruptcy them off. You're stuck with them. You're stuck with it. So how do you guys look at student loan debt? Well, from an investor perspective, because I'm not doing home loans, yeah, it doesn't affect me at all. Okay. See, because like, I just look, all I care about is the payment and your ability to carry it. But we don't care on conventional, at least, and this is completely different on FHA and VA. Right. But if you're on income-based for conventional, if your payment's a dollar, if your payment's zero, that's what we use. If it's zero on the credit report, I have to prove like that's just your income-based repayment. Right. And then, you know, that's it. Where it kills you, though, is you, when you're doing income-based repayment, if you're not paying all your interest, you're negative amortizing. So you end up with a higher balance than your original balance each month, and it just keeps tacking mm-hmm, on. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. the thing is, the way they do the credit reporting on student loans, they report your maximum or high credit as the original loan balance. So now with student loans, you don't just end up having one big student loan unless you go back in and refinance them all. You end up having like 8, 10, 12 of them. So now you have all of these loans that are over the limit. It wrecks what's called your utilization rate on your credit. I have seen people where I look at the credit report and if I just ignored the score and I didn't look at the balances on the student loans, they had a perfect credit report. Should be 750, 800, 850 if they're really experienced with credit. 680 because they were all over utilization. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause it's 30% of the score. You know, now the short term benefit is there's going to be a nice rental market for a really long time. Mm-hmm. With right? some highly educated tenants. With some very highly educated tenants. The bad part though is at some point that real estate has to turn over to that other generation. Right. Somebody's got to buy that stuff at some point in time. And so we have to, as a society, figure out how to fix it. Because we can't keep piling on debt like this. And be, oh, you know, they'll just earn their way out of it. It's too much money. They're coming out with too much debt. And they're not making enough money at the job. You know, you get an MBA and it's still only paying you like $70,000 a year. But you got hundred grand in student loan debt. What the hell? That's going to take a while eating. to pay. Yeah. <laughs> You're uh, living in mom's basement 10 years, so you get it, you pay it off. To get back to, uh, sorry, no, uh, Mr. Cole's question, yep. uh, we actually do think that, that there is a recession on the horizon. We do too. Uh, and, and as a result, we actually are cutting some of our LTVs, um, mostly within certain cities. But I think if you ask any real estate professional, we are at the top or past the top. Um, and whether property values fall or they just stagnate for a while, uh, we just don't want to get left holding the bag mm-hmm. on something that an investor can't sell because, you know, they're using valuations from five or six months ago. Uh, so we actually are cutting LTVs slightly. I mean, it's not like we're going from 75% to 20% or anything like that, but in certain areas we are lowering them. Well, and flipping is the highest risk exactly. thing you could absolutely do exactly. because you have to hit a certain number. That's right. And markets change and the rental market doesn't change in the same way that your home value can change. Right. Exactly. So, well, there's another question here is, is if you had significant equity in one of your properties or multiple units, what would you do before the market slows, assuming it will be in the next 24 months? I think as everyone said, I mean, at this point you want to, basically hold cash so that if it does slow down, you can jump in um, if there are significant decreases. So 
you know, if you sell the properties, um, then you're basically replacing them with something else. Probably, uh, if you're, if you're really good at timing, then you're replacing them for much less, but probably the smart play is to pull out equity, maybe not 90% or 80%, but right. maybe 40 or 50%. So you're not over leveraged. The debt service won't kill you and you still have some cash to play with. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We were talking about that earlier, too. I've been telling guys at my commercial real estate meetup, it's like hoard cash. The best way to make it out of the recession is to have cash. You can have leverage, but you got to have – Yeah, you got to have cash. And getting to your point about those REOs, right? If you got cash and we go back to a bad market and some really good plays come on, those who have cash will be able to take advantage of those once-in-a-lifetime opportunities. Yeah. You know, buying, buying ten houses for fifty thousand that need nothing, and you can put renters in there. I mean, yeah, I I, re, I remember in two thousand and ten, the Hyatt Regency in Dearborn. Remember, it was the Hyatt Regency back then? Yeah, came across my desk from one of the lenders I dealt with because the, the investor bought it, renovated twenty five million dollars. Okay, and that was a that was a good price for that hotel. I mean, it was cash flowing like crazy. Okay, and the note came across. For fifteen million, the bank was like, "You got any investors looking to? We'll sell the note for fifteen million bucks." They just must have needed cash, something terrible, right? Well, everyone needed cash yeah. back then, and and it was. And I was talking to a couple of people. Say, listen, this is a way to get the hotel. You know, get it for fifteen because you you have the mortgage, you have the paper, the paper is over everything, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Then and and with commercial you can have acceleration clauses that you do not have in home loans, right? So you can say, listen, I need you guys to pay up or find someone to take us out or we're going to take the hotel. So now you got the asset for $10 million less than the last guy paid. If you, you know, got the cash. Yeah. If you got there, cash. There you go. If you got if the cash. If you got cash. Yeah. A lot Especially of people made a shit ton of cash money doing like that. that. Who cares what it's really worth if you're, you know, you don't have an acceleration clause like that. Right. And cash flow is king. You know, it, it, that's where you all made a good point. If you want to pull out equity, do it, but still do it at a level that you can cash flow. Mm-hmm. Right? Don't yeah. go crazy, but do it at a level you can still cash flow, but hoard that cash so that another opportunity comes along, you can take advantage. Yeah, when we buy rentals, we also look at the debt service credit ratio. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we only do it to 1.5. I know a lot of people do it to like 1.1 or something like that. But that way, if there's like a severe shock in the rental market, you can still survive it no matter, well, not no matter how much you borrow, but right. you're safe if you're borrowing. That's right. I know multiple people who bought at supposedly the worst time, 2001 to 2005, and then held out the entire time, lost over half the value in their property. Their rent stayed the same, went down a little bit. Sometimes they went up. They wrote out the whole thing. And then sold for great profit in the last couple of years. So that is cash flow is definitely the safe, I don't want to say safe, least risky to market manipulation and market because the downside into, into a market is, you know, human beings are irrational and they often respond in irrational ways, especially over the short term, which if you're trying to flip, uh, can be extremely detrimental, right? right? Whereas if you're just renting out, people need a place to, I mean, 
so many people were renting. It, it, it was crazy. Good people, great renters, people who lost their homes. Like, well, that, that's the thing I was going to bring up. They were great. The renters. market shifted, but if you were renting as an investor, you were still making money. Now, maybe the guy that was only making forty thousand a year lost his job, couldn't recover. Okay, you had to put that guy out. But then you had another guy that was making one twenty, you know, out in Plymouth. Yeah. That moved to Livonia. Yeah, he still had to live somewhere. Did he get foreclosed on in Plymouth or Canton? Yeah, but he's still renting in Livonia or Redford, mm-hmm. and 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 that landlord is still getting eleven hundred dollars a month. Yep, and the guy's still hey, I still got the cash flow to pay it. And some areas rent went up because they wanted to stay in the same neighbor. They couldn't afford their adjustable rate right. or whatever. Right, that's and right. So they go and they like same down the street. So now they're in fourteen hundred instead of twenty one hundred, right? They're renting instead of, but it was really good for for those people. So, all right, next question, Brian Zabowski. What are some good ways to vet a lender you have never worked with before to not get scammed? I don't know about the scam part, but I'm going to add something here, like scam, uh, scammed and or incompetent. Right. I think we're more likely to run to incompetent than probably scam, although they certainly are out there in the hard money world, right? Charge you fees and then deny your loans. Or I don't know how many people I get a call like this, charge you fees, tell you to do a hundred percent and then lowball your appraisal and then add 30% to your already high rehab costs. So right. Kind of underhanded, right? Oh, now you need to bring $15,000 or right. you lose all your money and. There's a lot of that too. That's more like in the uh, hard money um, world. But what do you guys, how do you guys think somebody should vet a potential lender? Well, one thing is to look for transparency, which is easier said than done, I suppose. I think the number one name of the game in, in real estate in general is referrals. Mm-hmm. Um, go, go to Renegades, go to the meeting and talk to people there and ask them who they recommend. Ask them who they've actually worked with. Um, and everybody talks. I mean, it's just people talk, Yeah. see what they have to say, ask questions. Don't just call one person and be like, Hey, I want a loan. It's for this. It's an awesome deal. Cause someone will say yes to you and then they'll charge you a thousand dollars just to look at the deal. And then they'll charge you 10 points and you know, however much percent and you know, they'll lend you money, but you're going to get hosed. So probably referrals. That's, it's funny you say that. I only work by referral. I don't. I never just go Google and then start looking up. Maybe yeah. I should, but what I do is I reach out to my trusted network and I start going like, "Hey, who would you recommend for this?" Because when I started, I just started calling people out of the the phone book, right? Well, but yeah, that's the beauty of Renegades and the MDREI Facebook group, though. Like, if you're not a reputable person, you're going to be bounced by your third shitty deal. Like Mm -hmm. you just are, you're going to get called out. You're going to get told like, you're not going to do business like that around here effectively by the horde. And we will find out that you're not doing business the right way. He's talking about my favorite group of all time on Facebook, the Metro Detroit real estate investors group, right? You can only become a part of it if you're doing business in this region right you don't have to live here but yeah. it has to be obvious you're doing business here mm-hmm. what i love about the group is what joe was talking about is it's relatively self-policing right sometimes it gets a little whiny especially getting new guys this call out culture they don't 
fucking know about businesses growing or yada yada whatever right but like the truly bad actors they get flushed out pretty pretty fast um some people get hurt but it's usually not too many people so yeah i would say the same thing you know i, I remember i sat down with an investor and uh we were doing a multi-family deal and the guy said you know we were having lunch at, at Nomad Grill in Southfield. He says, you know, the reason I'm here is because you've been doing your meetups for like two years, right? And, you know, on a weekly basis, because of the, the amount of meetups that I do on a weekly basis, I'm going to meet up somewhere. And he's like, you know, if you were, quote, unquote, a cockroach of a guy doing business, they don't like the light. And it'd be too easy That's a great point. to yeah. show up. At your meeting that you're hosting. You son of a bitch. And put you on blast yep. in front of 30, 40. Yeah, this guy you know, took my money. 50 people. Yeah. yeah. Ex- yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So if you're the not. One, the one caveat is that not every lender is for every investor. And there are questions of like, you know, if, if someone can do a deal or not or whatever. But if someone is just shady and is out to rip people off, um, or, or to avoid being in business with someone like that, yeah, just ask people that that you trust and that you know have done business and yep. and I'm and I met some of those shady guys and I, and I've talked you know I've talked to them and, and I've matter of fact they met a investor that was doing business with a guy that like took his money on a deal like three years ago and I was like wait a minute Why is this the that? guy is this like that Gary? I'm not, that's not his name. I'm making it up. But was it like that Gary that you said stiffed you on a deal? Like, to you? why in the world is this guy even in your orbit? You know, I mean, come on, fool me once, right? Yeah. Yeah. Kick, kick that, kick that one loose. I am. It only takes once for me. Right. Life is too short and there's a lot of people. In this world, who would never have done something like that? It only takes uh, once for me. So, excellent points. All right, next question: David Hall, are buyer requirements loosening? It's a general question. I think he's probably talking more like towards you, Joe. Like, uh, sounds like it to me. Yeah. Um, I mean, Fannie Mae just had a software update that made their decision 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 engine engine a little tighter. But I don't think other than that, they're really moving too much one way or another. Like, I haven't seen anything like there was a concept during the downturn of um, departure residences. Like, you had to either have a certain amount of equity or a certain amount of money laying around to be able to convert a primary to an investment property and then still qualify to go buy another primary. Um, I forget who it was. There was somebody in Metro Detroit, actually, that was doing. And your, and your debt is gone afterwards. What was really going on is they were um, having you buy a house and then short sale the one that you were upside down in after, so you qualified. And the SEC had a little bit of an issue with that. Um, <laughs> I wonder why. I, I, I don't know either. It was almost like it was for, like perpetuating the downturn somewhat. It, it sounds legit. Well, yeah. Why can't I just keep doing that forever, yeah. Joe? It seems to work. But um, I, I haven't seen anything too crazy. Like we lost Home Ready. That like they broke like. That was how I was originally going to buy Glenn when it was going to be a 5% down deal where like any investor in a bad area could basically move in there as a primary and qualify, but they basically took that away. I had a couple of investors. In fact, that guy we drove around Detroit with, he pulled one off that way. Um, 
but I don't really think I've seen any major updates that it's more than a tweak. So, I mean, that's just kind of normal day-to-day business. Well, I'm not a fan of any government program, period, in general. Uh, It does seem like they did cut out all the bullshit and all the government stuff, right? Now you got to actually have a job. They check your debt-to-income ratio. They verify your employment. Mm -hmm. They check your taxes. They check, like, you could actually afford it now, right? Yeah. So long as you keep your job. Right. Yep. Right. So the only thing I really worry about is like mass layoffs. But if everybody gets laid off, that's a problem in and of itself right. for everybody, right. not just right. your damn loan. Right. So now people actually can afford it. They're not going down to 540, whatever. Right. They're not doing stated. They're not like it's actually, at least as far as a government loan goes, a probably a relatively good loan, at least compared to. Right what it was, I mean, right? It's still looser than common sense requirements were before the 80s. It really is. Like you would be 3143, like 31% of your gross income can go towards housing, 43 per, or 43% roughly for everything that's a required payment. Like now I can go to 50 and for the most part it seems to work okay. I can't I don't know of too many foreclosures on loans that I've written in the last 5 years that weren't like a systemic issue, like a divorce and one party tried to keep it and they couldn't. I mean, those are the ones that I remember. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Why have mortgage rates dropped and will they stay low for the foreseeable future? This might be a political question. Yeah, Yeah, Uh, it really is. Depends on the election, right? Yeah, exactly. Someone someone check Twitter. I think as Malcolm said earlier, you know, money's cheap. Everybody basically, you know, if you buy into this belief of of some kind of global investment community, which I guess they're – never mind. There is such a thing. But the the super rich want somewhere to put their money where it's going to grow. And so there's a lot of money out there. And, you know, that's why rates are low because people want to put their money to work. If you can't make 10%, you try and make nine. If you can't make nine, you try and make eight and so on and so forth down to two and three. Um, so, and it's the same with governments and the U S currently is probably the best investment environment in the world. Europe's kind of shaky. Asia's shaky. Um, so rates are really low here. I mean, Europe is negative in many countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, will they continue to go lower? I don't think there's a lot of room to move lower, but I don't think they're going to spike suddenly unless there's some kind of head to the to student loan debt or or the subprime auto market or something like that. Yeah, I I might be an outlier here, but it to me it doesn't matter who's sitting in the oval, right? The financial markets is a multi-trillion dollar beast. And if T-bills are at like, you know, less than 1%, okay, it trickles down mm-hmm. to everything else. And who's president is not going to change that. And, they, and as long as more money is coming to the marketplace and bond investors aren't making any money because rates are so low. So there's a shift to commercial mortgage-backed securities, i.e. real estate bonds, Mm -hmm. which is why there's a flow of capital, you know, and, you know, there's a ton of places to get money to to do real estate. So these investors are sitting there saying, man, my CD at the bank is not paying me any. I'm losing money with inflation. Yeah. You know, hey, invest in our, 
you know, example, invest with us as a lend, as we'd be part of the real estate lending community, right? And we'll pay you 6% on your money. Like, oh my God, 6%. Oh, that's fantastic. Especially when you're getting like half a percent or a percent. Yeah. 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 What you said is totally right. Whether Republican, Democrat, Independent, Federalist, Whig, whatever, all they want is to get reelected. So they're going to try to keep rates as low as possible. Well, and and the investors want to make money. And if they can't make it in the bond market, they're going to look to the real estate market. And if guys like – and also on the private money side, if if I and UF can provide them with some good, solid, underwritten deals where they can feel sleep at night and get their 6% interest, right, then we can loan it out to investors – at seven, eight, nine, and everybody's everybody's happy. Everybody's okay. I would also, just from a pragmatic point of view, um, David, almost half of all the taxes we collect every year goes just towards debt repayment, and that's just the federal debt. So I would say they also, besides being pragmatic, uh, since they decide their own interest rate, just like, what would you do if you could decide your own interest rate when you owed a shit ton of money, right? Uh, you would not raise it to 10% because that would greatly uh, uh, inhibit your ability <laughs> to ever repay it back, right? So I'm not saying – I'm just saying there's a, a, a financial benefit from them to continue it, especially when you um, – you know, you get that, that's a lot of interest you got to pay, right? Every – single you got all these treasury bills they're coming up you got to cash them out and you got to get new you can't be raising it without affecting everyone and the world buys our paper yeah yeah that's the world buys our paper yes because we're not china we're not russia you can't have an oligarch come in and just snatch up government debt doesn't work that way so other countries say, well, we can back our dollar with the American dollar, and we know they will pay because they always have. Right. And that's not going to change anytime soon. I know. It's what pretty I bad think. when we look better than everybody else. You know what I'm saying? Like, shit is bad. At, like, yeah. it's, we are the best looking thing out there. We are. So. Kind of scary in some ways. It is. Yeah. But what I think has kind of shifted markets around the last nine months or so is the trade war. And mm-hmm. I do think that President Trump's tweets, you know, about and just the instant ability for the general republic, general public to react to that immediately has made some of the swings that we've seen in interest rates a little more dramatic than they would have been in the past. Because, you know, first, you know, a hundred years ago or eighty years ago, let's talk depression era, it would have been well, a little longer than that. But um you wouldn't have found out that, you know, they Trade talks broke down. First, they wouldn't be having them so often because of the scale of the world. Right. But you wouldn't hear about them breaking down like that instantly. And it wouldn't be everybody all at once. It would be word gets to New York. Those newspapers come out. Some of those newspapers get to Philadelphia, to D.C., and then West. Right. So you would have kind of this roll in and out of it. That's right. But now you're getting 300 million people that see, you know, get a tweet update on their phones, maybe 1% of the public's following the president. And yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't. Like, he's on my Facebook just because I want to keep tabs on what the hell he's doing. I don't care at all. He does uniquely have the ability (laughs) to swing the market, I think. Well, Um, and there's something to be said. You shouldn't have an open stream of consciousness because sometimes, 
I'll say stuff to my wife. As soon as it leaves my lips, I should not have said. I'll that. say like I don't think I should have said that that way, and I can already feel the burn on the side of my neck. <laughs> I would have to turn to look at her, yeah. right? So it's not you know as a general principle, it's not good just to put out everything you're thinking because when you're in his position, people say, "Well, wait a minute, what are they doing?" Yeah, and is you know they might not have been doing anything. But, you know, and I will say this, the one caveat to everything I said previously, <laughs> right, is if the Middle East blows up and there's a, you know, war and, the, and oil stops moving. Yeah, that would be bad. But that would bad, be bad, bad yeah. for everybody. That would, fa- that would affect the financial markets, regardless of everything else. That w- So that would just say that that's where the president can muck it up. There's no economy without oil. There's, there's just, none. There's We're no not there economy yet. Yeah, without energy oil. Is a whole yeah. oil is our energy. And if yeah. gas goes to five bucks a gallon, all bets are off, baby. Yeah. People don't realize how lucky we are to not get too off cop. They have cheap natural gas too. Yeah. Historically yeah. speaking, I mean, we paid something like double, right? And if you don't think cheap energy, cheap energy always boosts economies, right? That's right. So anything that affects the cost of energy is going to affect literally every everything else. So um, why do some banks take longer than others? I don't know about that one. They're bad. Probably yeah. to do with their underwriting. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's it's, it's number processes. Of number of files. It's processes. Yeah. How no. fast? Actually, that's a good question. How fast can you close, Yoav? Uh, it depends how we're funding the deal. If it's just that, well, we funded a deal in less than 24 hours. We have. Having said that, it means we need to have our own cash to deploy, and our borrower needs to give us all of the required documentation right. that day. Uh, the biggest kind of obstacle to how quickly we can lend is that typically the required documents just kind of trickle in. Yeah. Um, I forgot who I was. I think yeah. I told Joe before we got in here that we got. Uh, an email from an investor's agent who was borrowing from us that closing is in three days uh, and we had to fund it. Awesome. We love doing deals. Hey, we haven't even gotten all of our required documents yet. So maybe you want to get a move on that. Um, we weren't sure we were doing the loan because of that. And, you know, they're getting pissed because we're like, hey, great. But so for us, it, it depends a lot on how quickly the borrower moves. And also whether we can use our own funds, um, which is a question to ask your your lender is, do you have the funds available to fund this? Because a lot of people are borrowing right now. And so, I mean, we're all of our cash is out. We're relying on partners right now. Uh, Malcolm? still fund, but... How long it does longer. it take you to fund? Um, typically on... It depends on the type of deal that it is, to be frank. If it's a fix and flip deal or, or a bridge loan... Um, those are the faster, you know, that's probably like three weeks. Okay. It all comes for us. The big limiter is how fast can we get the appraisal back? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, and um, title. yeah, it's it, usually easy. Yeah. Title's usually easy. Um, but I would say whatever the date is, we get that appraisal back. We're like a week to 10 days to close at, at, at that point on our rental loans, uh, for landlords, usually that's like 30 days. On that, the commercial is a whole nother. Yeah, it's all another ball. Yeah, it's all another bag yeah. of tricks. That could vary a lot, right? Yeah, but yeah. sometimes lenders will have processes that that are more extensive than others. So, as, as an example, I did a, a multifamily 
um, and I gave the borrower two choices. I said this would be option A if we fund it, and this would be option B if another lender does it, and I would still be involved as a broker. So this would be me as a broker versus me as a lender, right? And we were giving them, you know, like $60,000 more cash on it. It was a cash-out refi. Um, but the other guy had a better rate. So they said, well, okay, we'll do the rate. You know, that deal took like three months to close, okay? Because that lender just, they wanted, you know, three years tax returns. They wanted bank statements. Then they wanted verification of the bank statements. And they wanted verification upon verification upon verification. It was a freaking nightmare. We could have closed that thing in like 30 days, you know? And I, sw- I swear to God, two days before the close, the borrower said, oh, hey, can I get that extra cash that we first talked about. No, no, that was if we were doing the deal. You went with those other guys. They're not changing their number. So, you know, it's like, oh, okay. Joe, how long does it take you? Yeah, so legally I have a minimum seven-day requirement by rugby from when I do the initial disclosures to when I can actually close the loan. I've actually hit that a couple of times. I did a six-day once. Um, it was a rate and term refi of a primary residence, very qualified individual. I got what's called a property inspection waiver. So like I didn't have to do an appraisal. So it was literally like, okay, here's the file. I just basically underwrote it myself, handed it to an underwriter and they said, okay. Um, I mean, typical like cash out refi for an investor, I should be around 25 to 35 days is what I normally want to ask people like this particular environment. It's been a really hard year. Um, like as far as underwriting turn times go, I'd say I'm probably closer to 35 to 45 right now, but I see that improving in the near future. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've had some of those nightmare deals too. I did one with David Gittins a couple of years ago where I think that deal took us five months because it was kind of like Glenn where there was a rehab and, you know, I had changed lenders at the time because MB had folded and, you know, been sold to fifth third and we moved to level one. But I actually had to write that deal twice because I wrote it at MB when we started. And then MB was completely closed out by the time it was ready to go. So I had to rewrite it at level one. Also, David, I would say inertia. You know, uh, a lot of this has to do with the specific mortgage broker that you're or the specific representative of whoever mm-hmm. they're working for. Agreed. One of the reasons why I call every lender on every offer is I'm checking their response time. I'm checking how they answer the questions. I'm checking how they speak to me. I'm checking how they reply to email. I'm seeing if they are a professional, right? So, and I call every single one. I'm sure you've noticed in your life, David, there are things you want to do and you don't do them. There's inertia and everything. And I, I tend to see if you tolerate that. They will take longer if you let them, you know, and a lot of them I screen out beforehand. Like they don't, res- they never call me back. You're done. Um, you take 48 hours to call me back. That's really not good because w- are you going to respond to my transaction coordinator's emails when the time comes? Are you going to order the appraisal in a timely fashion? So I think some of it's just, you know, we're human meat sacks and there's a lot of inertia. And uh, some people will take advantage of any extra time. You know, Kellerism is uh, the work uh, fills the time allotted, right? Right. 
Right. So for a lot of people, that's why I always set deadlines and do that. And I go, well, what's it matter? I'm like, no, you're not getting an extension. Yes, I did put it back on market. Order the fucking appraisal. I'm not kidding here. You don't just get to take your time. I'm in the driver's seat. So you, it's just inertia and you got to have, you just call, you know, and I would, you know, call these guys to whoever you're, you're dealing with, just see how they respond. And I think that might not be a problem. All right. Next question. Garrett Horton, what would their concerns, objections be specific to a new construction project? Does anybody actually do new construction here? Okay, good. That's the question. I wasn't sure about that one. What milestones would they want to see before the first draw? So they're asking what concerns and objections they would have to new construction. I guess how you underwrite it's probably what he's getting at. And what kind of milestones you want to see for your first draw? We don't do new construction. So, well, uh, actually, I'll real quick. Also, yeah, I don't do new construction on investment properties. I can on primary and seconds, but yeah, we won't. We would consider that a spec build, so I won't have any real input here. I think that's all you. Yeah. Um, first thing is. Um, we want to see what level of experience they've had. You, you know, if you do new construction and you've never done one before, that's going to be a problem because nobody wants to be the first one. Yeah, it's true. Right. Especially on, on, on new construction. But um, if they haven't done a new construction, but let's say they've done a uh, $75,000 rehab or $100,000 rehab project, right, we will take into consideration that experience. Okay, now it can't just be one. Okay, but if they've done like um, three or four large, you know, gut rehabs, um, and we're going to document everything, right? That's the first hurdle. So experience right out, right off the get go. Right off the get go, yeah. and the GC has to have experience. Ooh, that's so double whammy there. Yeah, right? it can't be. And I've had people. Well, what if my GC's done them? But you've never done one. No, you personally have to have wrote herd over that project. Plus, the GC has to have experience. Well, what are the what are the what are the underwriting risks on that? What makes you uh, decide that I have a good idea why? But right, what makes new construction different than a traditional fix and flip? Well, because it it may never get finished, and we're not in the construction business. I'm in the paper business. Right. I give out paper. I don't build houses. <laughs> right. So we got to know we got a super, super solid borrower with a ton of experience that, yeah, they've got a history of projects that and, are completely. And isn't it, it's not just about the construction when you're talking about new construction, ironically. Right. It's also, I mean, about the permit process, making sure everything is good to go before you even stick a shovel in the ground. Right. Um, we had a deal come across our desk that was just for us as investors. That it was like a $1.8 million deal in the area. Uh, and, and this group wanted accredited investors only. Um, they were going to build, I don't know, six, seven, eight houses in a nice area. Uh, and basically you couldn't earn a return until they stuck shovels in the ground, still until they started digging. Unfortunately, uh, although they thought the permit process was good to go, the money just wound up sitting there for about a year. We found out later because we didn't invest. Um, so, you know, that's a year your money's out there and you're earning 0%. I mean, what's your opportunity cost on that? Right, so, right. And that gets to the experience issue. Exactly. It, going back to, okay, have you pulled 
permits? Have you dealt with the planning commission? Because sometimes you'll deal with a municipality and they'll say, no, we don't want houses at that spot. You know, or we, we're okay, but we don't like the design of your houses. So you, so now all of a sudden you got to go back to the architect, redo plans because maybe you were going to do duplexes or like you see some, some parts of, uh, they're doing those brownstones now. Yeah. In Midtown. Yeah. And you know, another place is like, no, nah, we don't want that style. And you're like, I spent 80 grand on these plans. What do you mean? You know what? No, we're going, no, we're not. And if they say no, guess what? It's no. Yeah. It's no. Yeah. You better have a plan B and a plan C. You know, and funding, you know, your point you have, right? You got to have funding to carry yourself through that. And if you can't afford those hiccups, sorry, dude, this ain't the, this ain't the project for you. All right. I hope that answers your question, Garrett. Eric Friday, what are your requirements for a refinance in Detroit? He didn't specifically say investor, but I'm pretty sure he means like your rental. I'm relatively sure because I, I personally know him. So I think he means, yeah. yeah. So what are your requirements for a uh, rental refi in Detroit? Uh, so on a rental refi in Detroit, um, it depends on the as-is value. For for us, and I don't know if I'm coming through or not. Um, so yeah, on a rental refi in Detroit, we would probably lend right now. I don't remember what the specific LTV is. I apologize. If someone's interested, please email me. Um, but it, it's basically, you know, we want to see the comps, the rental comps, photos of the property, make sure it is rented. Um, I don't know. Nothing too out of the ordinary. Are you? Similar or? Um, I just looked at ours because um, we just had a ton of changes, which just went into effect um, Monday. One, our minimum loan is still 75000 Um We'll do 80% loan to value on a refi. Um, we used to have, we still have no seasoning requirement. So you could have literally bought it in July, fixed it in August, September, and now you're leasing it out in October, we'll, we'll refi. Based on that ARV, not what you paid, which is the other big thing that separates our program from a lot of conventional lenders. Because they'll say, well, listen, you you bought it for 100 You can't tell me you're going to refi for $200,000. If the appraisal in October says it's $200,000, we'll refi based on that $200,000. Yeah. Um, and we would just need an executed uh, – well, we used to require executed lease agreement. As of Monday – um, of last of this week, um, we now don't even have that anymore. Yeah. So we'll base. So if you don't have a, a, a tenant in there yet, we'll go on market rents, and we'll underwrite it based on market rents. And you have six months to get an executed lease agreement on that property. And then if you if you don't, then we raise the interest rate two percent. Stick. On the, on I like it. Yeah, but we'll do Detroit. We don't have a problem with uh, with Detroit at all. Yeah, same with us. I think the only real differences between us and you is is the ARV. I know that our our, our sorry LTV our LTV is definitely lower. I can't recall exactly what it is right, right now. And then we will lend lower than seventy five down to ten thousand. But right, yeah, right, yeah. Um, you guys go lower than us. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, from my standpoint, Detroit's no different than any other city. Like, even Flint, we treat the same, even with the water crisis. Like, there's no requirement in Flint either for, like, a lead abatement machine or anything. 
Fannie Mae flat out said, we're going to keep doing loans in Flint. We're not going to let this fall off the map. So biggest problem I really run into is value. Like Detroit can be insane. Mm -hmm. Even, I mean, look at Glenn, like keep going back to that, but it's such an interesting deal. Um, I got two appraisals on it, one at 92,000, one at 125. And those were what? 60 days apart. Maybe it's always hard and an up and coming area though. That cause, and you were literally first. We're going to have to tell this story someday. Like someday. Usually you don't want to be first. This is a good enough deal. It was worth going through the hassle of being first. Normally I almost say it's better to be second or third. Right. Yeah. But yeah, Second if you're first and a developing, you definitely get the most though. Like you, you yeah. killed it. Right. Yeah. But it's more likely to fail or you're more likely to have value problems. Right. Because how one person looks at it and how the next person looks at it. And then you go to, th- it could be very different. But the, if you're in Royal yeah, Oak or, or in Bagley or someplace where you have 25 of all the same and it's really easy to identify, you're just not really going to have the same sort of problem than if you're in this up and coming area. One of the things I always like doing is working the edges too. So I kind of became like a, I won't say expert, but I'm like journeyman level. Like, okay, how's an appraiser going to look at this? I've, I've seen enough of them now too. I'm like, all right. I tell people, it's like, Hey, this might take two appraisals. Right. And then you have backup plans for backup plans when they fall through. You can only do this with certain people, right? right. If you're the kind of person that stays up night worrying, like this debt, not good for you, right? Right. If you're at least medium risk and you don't mind, I'm like, okay, we challenged that appraisal. We got a few grand back, not enough. Then we moved and we hit the number. I couldn't believe it. I figured yeah, we had a 20% it. chance of hitting that number. I figured we're going to hit 115. That was like my conservative, like, but hey, man, you know, we should shoot for 125 because there's a 20% chance we get it and, and we got it yeah. on the second appraisal. So, Kind of a well, little that appraiser just he knew Detroit, like, yeah, he understood like what's happening with the progress, and that's really what is so hard for me with Detroit mm-hmm. is that the cash flow is amazing. So, looking at it from a debt service coverage yep. standpoint, yeah. piece of cake, but looking at it as sales market value, which is a lender where you know we have to put in the situation where hey, what if we foreclose this? That makes Detroit so hard, it does, I, you know, as I mentioned, I, I've I rarely ever have a deal get killed on credit. It's almost always the appraisal. Yeah. You know, and then it's like, okay, I got to do it. You know, and that's why I would much rather do my own deals or or do deals through my own fund and broker them out because I order the appraisal. I have my own appraisal software. So you can get, you know, you give me an address and I'll pull it up and I'll see what it's worth on our end. You know, and I've had people say, oh, this thing's worth 120. But my software is telling me, 60 and i'm like okay you have some different comps because i'm going to i'm seeing the same comps that the appraiser is going to before you spend the 500 bucks yeah right so where are you getting this data from you know on the flip side of that i've had where uh i'm working on a deal now we do we i we came out at 160 appraiser came back at 140 so it's like okay but i got comps so we're doing an appeal Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. of that, and I'm and because I'm in control of it, I'm able to appeal that appraisal before it gets to the underwriter. You know, because they can't unsee. That's true. Yeah. A, a number, so you have to, you know, you can't say, okay, yeah, it's ninety. 
Now, here's another thing saying it's 130. See, that's interesting. They it set the pace already in their brain. Even if I have to do an appeal, and, like, I've won a few for members of, you know, MDREI and Renegades. Like, if I do an appeal and it comes back and it's better or worse, like, I get the updated number no matter what. Yeah. Well, see, sometimes the, the it gets down to the, uh, the, the underwriter. Mm-hmm. And depending on, especially if it's a... It's on the edge. And all it takes is one investor to get a house down the street from you, you know, for 50 grand. Yeah, just a screaming deal. Yeah. A screaming deal. And they're like, well, yeah, but here's this. And you're like, ah. yeah. Congrats on the deal, Kills man. Him. You yeah. killed me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Good for you. But you just killed our deal. And we've done the work already. You're at the beginning. Right. <laughs> right? Well, but at, at the same time, like, if you did the work already, are those – you know, assuming you move it from like really ugly to really pretty, right? Are but those, those really aren't comps? really comps anymore. Yeah, but if there's not enough, you never know how they're going to grab it. I like right. his point about the psychological because I think a lot of times that's what it comes down to, right? I I have another client who's having a hell of a time getting a value because of an inept agent and absentee owners and bad access. To the property, so it sat on the market at one price for like 187 days. Not a true reflection of the price, but amazingly, the appraisal comes back at what it was on the market for for all that time. Right? How do you explain to the underwriter? Right? So a lot of underwriters are like, "Well, I got to explain this to somebody." Right? Like, why was it on the market for all this time but this price? But you're trying to say it's worth worth more. I think sometimes you, if an underwriter doesn't have to explain something. It's better for that. It's easier for them just to say yes. Yeah. Whereas they see the ninety-two. Now you got to get up to one twenty. Now they got to come up with an explanation. Well, and, and understand right? the mindset of, a, of an underwriter. They're not there. And let me be flat out about this. They're not there to approve your loan. They're there to shoot it down, right? They're yeah. there to kill it. I'm going to drown it, burn it, shoot it in the head, and if I if it's still alive, it kick it. Okay, I'll guess I'll marry him. <laughs> okay, but their but their deal is not to lose money because if they they're going to sign off on that deal and it, and it goes to committee and it comes back and when it goes bad they're like who who signed off on that deal? He's more concerned about that than he is you making twenty grand on your your property. Like from our standpoint, like underwriters aren't. I don't want to say they don't make a decision anymore, but it's so automated. That it's really not like that. Like, I really believe our underwriters want legitimate deals to close. Right. But they want, like, what it really comes down to is we just want to make sure that we can get deals that if we end up servicing it, we know we're going to get paid. And if we end up selling it, we know it's going to meet investor guidelines so it's off our books and it doesn't come back. Like, generally, if you convince an underwriter of those two things... They're going to work with you on conventional. Well, and see, that's the difference with conventional and private. Commercial. We, yeah, we, we, we talked about this real briefly uh, before we came into the podcast. Everything with us is a manual underwrite. Mm-hmm. It's not an automatic like, algorithm. You spin in the numbers and it spits out. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody's looking over that file and some individuals are getting together in a room. You know, example, when someone's doing a fix and flip, they submit their scope of work. We have ratios. Mm-hmm. So we look at the ratio of the scope of work to the purchase price, right, to the loan amount, exactly. right, to the debt service. We look at ratios. And if it exceeds certain ratios, it goes to a construction committee, 
Okay, and and our construction committee, that's all they do is look at scope of work all day long. Getting to your point earlier about knowing what, how much a roof costs, right? You really don't want the construction committee to go over your scope of work with a fine tooth comb. No, no. Okay, so you know, I, I mean, I love them, but and they protect me because I'm on the hook. You know, when I'm doing a loan, you know, I can't have a bad loan. I just can't do it, right? So they protect me, but that's where deals go to die. So if if I have something that's outside of those ratios, it's like, okay, listen, we're going to really tighten this thing up because we can't afford to be loosey-goosey and get in there. Yeah, and if it gets that close, then, I mean, is it really a deal at that point? Exactly. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Hope that answers your question. Next question, Jan Dykers, who is also on the podcast. She's awesome. Opted a dog for me. What are lenders looking for to approve self-employed people? I'm probably going to get way different answers here because we got way different people. So non, I'm guessing non W two employees, right? So 1099. Uh, Self-employed and be W two. Anybody that has an S corp. Mm -hmm. Well, a lot of people that have an S corp. (laughs) Not that many people though. Yeah. Short version for us, it doesn't matter. We don't care. I don't care what their job is. I don't ask for W-2s. I don't ask for tax returns. I don't care. I concur. Yeah. My answer will be significantly longer. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's okay. Yeah. So let's get rental properties out of the way. Like for your holds, as soon as you have it up and running, like if you did a long rehab and we can prove it and you just got a lease going or as soon as it's on your tax returns – I only really need a lease or a one-year history on your tax returns to use it. Like, um, I think, Malcolm, you were talking about market rent earlier. Like, mm-hmm. if I'm doing a purchase transaction for people, and this is the last income I ever try and use because it costs you an extra $150, but I can actually use, if you're buying a vacant property, I can actually go as far as, it's the same thing, market rent, have the appraiser analyze the rent, give me a number. I can use 75% of that number to offset the mortgage payment. And the magic thing there is the offset. Because if you're making money in that after that offset, like if you're positive cash flow after you subtract the mortgage payment with a 25% discount on the rent, you have no liability in our math, but it's 100% in, whatever's left over is income. So like a lot of clients, I'll tell them, yeah, you're perpetually approved as long as it performs. That's why the math works like that, is that if you get that one and it's always performing, your debt ratios are going to get better each time. Now, getting into the more standard self-employed situation, two years is almost always the rule of thumb. It's actually two tax returns. So if you're like, if you start your business in July of, say, 18, when you file your 18 tax returns, that's six months. You do your 19 tax returns. Now you got two tax returns. Yeah, in the right situation, that can be used, um, especially if you were employed previously and you went self-employed into a similar line of work. Like, we would look at that if you're making similar or better income, especially. Um, that's the big rule is two years, and we're going to look at it really comes down to the money you can spend, not the money you show the IRS that you made. So, like, your home office... That write-off is not an actual cash expense. So, like, that immediately, I see them all the time on Schedule C's where home offices will be written off, and we add that back immediately. 
Anything that's depreciation, we give you back immediately because it's a non-cash expense that year. You spent money on the asset previously. Same thing with amortization, um, realtors and investors, mileage. When you claim mileage on your Schedule C, it's 54.5 cents a mile you write off. The IRS denotes 25 cents of that as depreciation. That's depreciation. Um, the other side of the sword that sneaks up on people is meals and entertainment. When you go and you know write off a $100 dinner with a business partner, yeah, you write off your $50 of that that you know you spent on them. We actually subtract the other $50 from that because it's the money that you spent on yourself because it's not money you can physically spend anymore. And that's like the overarching idea with self-employed income is figure out how much spendable cash you have over a two-year history. Hmm. And then sometimes you can get a one-year approved, but it's pretty rare to see. So assume two years, and even when you get a one-year, you have to have five years history to use it. So it's not really beneficial for the transitioning self-employed person. I don't know. I think that's enough of an overview. By all means, feel free to give me a call if you have a specific situation you want me to review. The, the I'll caveat tax returns for free. You pay me to write your loan. <laughs> uh, the caveat I was going to mention is uh, SBA. So if someone has an owner-occupied business and they're trying to get an SBA loan, we do look at their income, and and that's where you need to be profitable. So if your accountant did a fantastic job mm-hmm. and you've made no money you know, for the last three years, and then you come in for SBA loan for your business, they're going to say you have no money. You have no profits, and that's going to be an issue for an SBA lender. Now, do you guys adjust for, like, depreciation, for instance, because, you know, that's a non-cash expense? Like, if I show zero, but I wrote off 100000 in depreciation, is that 100000 to you? Well, yeah, but you generally... Know, bar, for instance. Yeah, but generally, if... If I'm so close to the edge of profitability where with depreciation I can show I'm making no money. Well, I'm saying net zero, but in net zero I wrote off a hundred in depreciation. Right. So I really had a hundred thousand in cash available. Well, in that situation, yes. Okay. In that situation, yes. Right. But if it's only like thirty thousand in depreciation, you know, because you got to look at what the debt service is going to be on the loan that they're trying to get. Right. right. So if I'm trying to get a million dollar loan, right, we need to see a gap between their profitability and their business. and Because they didn't have that. Typically, they didn't have a loan when they came to see us um, uh, to get that property. Right. So that that's when it's going to be an issue. So that's where sometimes it's like, you know what? You need to show some money for a couple of years and then come back. Yeah. I tell a lot of investors this. It's expensive to show an income. It is. You got to pay taxes on mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt about it. Got to play the game, right? Yeah. Yep. He who has the gold makes the rules. Yeah. That's always been true. Mm-hmm. Always. I bet it's going to be true after we're all long gone too. Absolutely. Right? That's that's Absolutely. one of those hard rules, I think. So I say that I say that all the time. Somebody says, "I don't understand why the lender is asking this. This makes no sense. Your underwriter is stupid." And it's like, okay, I've explained it to them. They don't like the answer, and then I go, "He who has the gold makes the rules." Yes. You don't like the rule if you want his money. Yeah, if you had your own money, you wouldn't have to ask anybody anything. You'd just go That's do what it, he wants, right? right? Yeah, that is nice if you have your own money. You know? Yeah, it's called go get a HELOC. Everybody else that. might have an opinion about their money, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting how that works. I'm like, wait a second. Well, if you had to, well, I don't want to use my money. Well, what the fuck are you talking about then? I don't understand. <laughs> All right, next question. Brandon Raider, 
How does delayed financing work? Are there specific requirements to qualify? I heard someone mention an option where you can buy a property with cash and add repairs on the closing statement, then refinance into a mortgage for the full amount right away. Gotcha. Okay. So obviously that's a hundred percent geared at me. I don't think either of you have a con. You don't have seasoning, so yeah, that eliminates yeah, delayed financing. Okay. So I actually saw that question on the post and a friend of mine happens to have written one of the income calculation programs that Fannie Mae uses and he's one of those underwriting gurus. So I actually went through and just sent him a text and saying, hey, I just want to double check like what the actual answer is on the second part of his question. Um, so I'll get to that specifically in a minute, but delayed financing isn't this big, crazy idea. It's a couple of little tweaks of the general cash out refinance requirements. Um, first off, in all conventional lending, everything Fannie Mae, everything Freddie Mac, the day you buy the house, the next day you can use the appraised value. If you get a house for $10,000 and it's worth a million, win. You will get to use it right away. Good luck making that happen. If you find one, I would love to partner on it. <laughs> but, Don't um, call Joe. Call me. 313. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck Joe. No, I'm not, I like Joe. <laughs> but delayed financing really is just an exception to cash out refinancing rules. The reason it exists is there's a guideline in Fannie Mae requirements that says to be able to cash out, you must have been on title for six months, and Freddie Mac has it also. That's also why private loans are so much stronger than land contracts, but I think we have another question about that. Um, on land contracts, you don't get possession of title until you pay it in full, so then you can't cash out for six months after that. Where delayed financing comes in is that at the very end of that statement, the six-month requirement on title, there's this phrase, or meet the delayed financing exception. And it's really a simple exception once you grasp around it, and I think it's a really powerful tool. I've had people buy a house, and 45 days later, you're five grand into it in a house in South Warren, and you're making 400 months, $400 a month in cash flow on it, and that's all you have into it is five grand. Like, props out to the guy that does it. He knows exactly who he is. Hopefully he's listening to it. I'm not going to name names here. I will say he's at Rio of Oakland. Um, and it's not Ron. <laughs> That's who everyone's going to think as soon as I say Rio of Oakland. Um, but what, what the delayed financing is, is you buy a property, typically with cash, you can use other debt. You can use a HELOC on your primary, so you can use secured financing. You could take a credit card advance out for all we care. The key is it has to be your money. It can't be a gift. I could borrow money from Malcolm, and if he gave me an unsecured loan, he I could totally delay financing that. It would actually work out better if he put it on title because then it wouldn't be considered a cash-out refinance to pay him off, just a rate-and-term refinance. So, hint, hint, try and avoid the cash-out fee if you can. Have your hard money lender fund, you know, whatever you want to refi if you have that type of relationship. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink, say no more, say no more. Yeah, oh, that's You keep saying good. more, yeah. Yeah, it's above the book to be able yeah. to tell people that, or above the table. Um, so, you close this deal cash is the hypothetical way to think about it, or let's say a HELOC draw. You immediately, as soon as you close on the cash deal, you can the next day apply for a mortgage. We'll use the appraised value right away. 
You get the standard program limits for a single family at 75% loan to value for a multi-unit property at 70%. The caveat there is your maximum loan amount, and note it's the loan amount specifically that's restricted, not the appraised value. There's a lot of confusion around that. But the loan amount cannot be more than your cash deal closing costs, your, I'm sorry, your cash deal purchase, your closing costs on that deal, any prepaids that you pay for taxes and insurance, and then you can also roll, roll in the closing costs from the refinance that you would be doing with a loan officer like me. And whatever that number is, compare it to 70 or 75%, take the lesser of the two, that's your maximum loan amount. I would tell you, unless you do a major rehab and then, like, you're going to take three, four months to do that anyways. You just wait out the six month for the seasoning period then. Especially, we have you apply at month five and you close around month six. Um, so, like, if you're doing a major rehab, it's not going to be a huge thing. But if you pick up that deal that you're just getting it awesome because someone had to sell and you were able to do it cash and they were able to do it quick... Or if you get that one that has like one little stupid problem, like I've had a property where it didn't qualify unconventional because it had one bathroom and no toilet. Like that is the easiest fix in the world. Go spend $300, install a toilet. Oh, you can have a plumber do it for that. And all of a sudden it's a habitable house. So you either fix the cheap problem or you just get it at a really good deal. You start the paperwork the next day and from there it's a regular cash out refi. It can't be gift to buy the to buy the property, and if you use debt to acquire it, like if you used a loan from Malcolm that was unsecured or a credit card balance transfer or HELOC, before we put a dollar of money into your own hands, we have to pay that debt off. So if you don't pay it in full, that's fine. You can still just qualify with you know that payment, or if it's like a HELOC, we would reduce the payment to what's real going forward then. But that's it. Like it's really. There's a lot of explanation there, but it's just the general concept of a cash-out refi. And then they give you this exception that, hey, you know, if you're doing this deal where we couldn't do it or it didn't make sense to do a mortgage right away, we'll let you get your money back is what it really can work out to. Well, there's a second part there. The, is there a way to cash-out refi a house right after paying off a land contract without waiting the six months? Absolutely not. Well, yeah, yeah. there is. Well, well, we'll go, to one of these guys. <laughs> yeah, that's go see Malcolm. Go see Joab. They'll do a one-day transactional, put a lien on there, and then, yeah, I can rate and turn that immediately. Um, that would be your workaround there. I would venture the six months of interest or the 12 months of interest on the land contract or, like, just – not having the money out is probably actually better than like closing twice. But you know, if you need the money, you need the money. Yeah, that we, simple. We actually just did exactly that. We cashed out a land contract and yeah. There was another part to his question. What was like earlier on, but like middle of the question? What was it? Um, oh, being able to roll in rehab on yeah finance. repairs. Okay, so this is the opinion that Mike gave me: is you can do it. But you have to include it in the purchase price. The way they would want you to structure it is it would almost be almost like a Glenn situation where, say, I had just bought it from Todd directly and then effectively like rolled into the purchase price, you know, on a cash deal, like did all the rehab. So, you know, it's really a $70,000 purchase and these are not the real Glenn numbers. Um, 
but I'm going to buy it from whoever else for a hundred and they're going to bring it up to snuff. Like I would be able to get a hundred back plus all my closing costs right away. That's the only way he could think of. I've had a couple of people. So build it in up front, basically. Build it in up front. But yeah, you can't just list rehab as a closing cost. And if you look at the actual guideline for delayed financing, you'll notice that rehab specifically is not included in the statement. I'm sure out there someone is interpreting it that way, but like I haven't found an underwriter that was like, yeah, no problem. Do it that way. All right. Next question. I hope I get your name right. Tremonte, I hope I got that right. I'm sorry if I got that wrong. That's downside to knowing you online and not knowing you in real life, right? What are the pros and cons for property valuation to use full appraisal, more expensive versus broker opinion, less expensive when doing a cash out refi? Does anybody use BPO for cash out refis? We, we do if there's no construction. Okay. Um, it's an interior BPO, but as long as there's no rehab, we do use them. Uh, I think the appraisal is more thorough. Um, so I, I don't know. I, let me think about it. Give me a second. I don't know if you want to tackle it, but, um, we do both. We, we, we prefer appraisals. We will do an interior BPO. Um, um, I just had a, a third-party appraisal company. I, they're they're really really good, but they just added on a hundred and twenty. I think it was a hundred and twenty dollar premium for Michigan properties on, onto their appraisals. Yeah, and I was you know and, I, and I'm directly ordering the appraisals for for the deal. So I look it over because I've got like three other loan officers that work for me. But I'm I'm handling that that end of the deal, so I'm like, oh, this is good. So I go to order the appraisal, and all of a sudden this thing pops up. I'm like, what the hell is this? I'm like, oh no, no 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 no. I call. I'm like, oh yeah, that that's happened. That's like statewide. I'm like, listen, I order stuff all the time. You you know, this is not to. When did this happen? Are you sure? Is this a mistake? Oh yeah, yeah. I just flipped it to a different appraisal company, um, and handled it that way. Because it will get expensive, um, especially if you have to order. When you talk about a scope of work, along with market rents, you know, depending on the deal, that can get expensive. I, yeah. So we all we only use third party appraisers. I don't think that there's necessarily an upside for an investor to do an appraisal. I think it's basically what your lender requires. Unfortunately. Um, I know that BPOs are cheaper, obviously. That's why you'd prefer to do one, but I can't imagine that there would be anything that shows that appraisals come in higher than BPOs. So I think it, you know, you're, you're kind of restricted to what your lender will require. And if it's an appraisal, unfortunately, you got to do an appraisal. Goes back to he who has the gold makes the rules. Exactly. That's damn true. We won't touch a BPO as a agency lender. Like I'm more likely to get an appraisal waiver on a deal than use a BPO. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like, and I can count on one hand, the number of investment property refis I've gotten appraisal waivers on. I'll do a BPO for speed. Usually that's when it says, okay, we have to absolutely positively close this thing in 10 days. Okay. I'm doing a, a, a BPO. I can't do it on a rental though. So if it's a landlord, doing a rental property, we got to do full appraisal on that. That's a week process period. See, I would think as an investor, I would, re- 
I mean, and maybe I'm thinking of a BPO the wrong way, but I would almost rather have the appraiser's opinion because like at that point that I'm doing that appraisal, I would try and get like a hold of them either afterwards, like when I got the report or like even beforehand. And I would want like the as is value and I would want the ARV like, hey, this is what I plan to do. Give them the scope of work. And like, this is what, you know, what do you think it's worth then just to confirm like what my exit strategy is? Next question. And this is the Instagram name B B B before A. B before A. First time investor looking for funds for a rehab. What are my options and requirements? We may not have enough information to answer this one, but I think we covered some of it before, but if you guys want to take a stab at it again, we can take a stab at it again. Or you guys feel like we covered that one pretty well. I can't it's, really it's, do rehab so much. It's so. pretty straightforward, I think. I mean, it's like your first option is your own money if you have it. If you don't have it, then, you know, probably it's hard money, private money. Uh, if you can, family or friends with with money. Um, if it, We'll do a first-time investor, but just know you're going to have to put 10% more down. So whatever the standard uh, no, LTV requirements are, for a experienced investor, yours is going to be lower. Um, yeah, so we don't have that. Like I said, whether you've done zero deals or a hundred deals, uh, our LTVs are the same. Our rates are the same. Um, so, see, my at, LTV probably drops down to your LTV. Probably, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, there's, it's interesting how much, how many differences there are from lender to lender. That's why I'm, that's why I wanted to do yeah. this. So. I think people get stuck in their mind that there's, they do, my whole podcast, I should have renamed it, Not One Way. Yeah. Like, cause my, yeah. the entire purpose of my yeah. podcast is to break that black and white thinking that there's only one way. Obviously, there's a group of principles which makes more sense than others. But within that group of principles, there's a lot of paths and a lot of variations and a lot of way to get from point A to point B to point C. It's like asking, how do I invest? Yes. I mean, well, you know, my uncle told me I should buy gold. Yeah. Okay. Buried well, in the backyard. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. So and most people's standard is whatever they did on their last deal. Right. So they're like, okay, this is how deals are done. I've done my last five deals this way because that first deal was that way. So the other yeah. four deals with this. And this, but you don't know that the universe is actually bigger than that. Yeah. Yep. I like and that. The universe is, is bigger than that. I'm going to steal and deploy that. <laughs> <laughs> everything is basically negotiable, too. Uh, you know, um, it's just a question of, of what you can bring to, to make it swing your way. Well, B before A too. Some other sounds like you're going to need some money, right? Which means if you don't have money, you need to figure out a way to get it. Pull off credit cards, borrow it from friends. Another thing we didn't talk about, which I'm a huge fan of, B before A, especially if you can humble yourself, um, go work for somebody doing it. I don't care what your job is, doing it. Get some experience. Work your way up to some sort of like some when when I started. I had to do a few 50-50 deals, right? What I mean by 50-50, it's got to be a great deal. They put up all the money and I do all the work. And at the end, whatever profit there is, it's a very expensive deal, right? But if you're an unknown entity, 
Sometimes I like to say you got to put a lot of bait on that hook, right? I like to fish and hunt, obviously, right? Don't put the little worm on there. Sometimes you got to put a big old fucking meaty worm on there, right? Give somebody a reason to to take a chance on you, and that becomes a lot easier if you can do it underneath somebody else first, right? Mm-hmm. But it means you're making them the money while you earn and learn, right? But you also have somebody then watching you to make sure you don't make any dumb mistakes. Cool. Ostensibly, that, right? That might be more valuable than half the profit. It probably is. And I know a lot of private lenders, like well, I'll be doing that podcast at, at a later date. A lot of them don't touch anybody who hasn't done three to five deals, right? So how do you bridge that gap? Well, this is the way you bridge that gap, right? You go out and get that experience. You work it for someone else. You do one or two 50-50 deals. Prove yourself as an entity, right? And you made money. Uh, whenever you make somebody money, second time is always easier, right? Yep. Uh-huh. You, you took that part out. Did what he, did what he said he was going to do. That's always a huge thing too. So um, don't be afraid to look at it like that. All right. Next question. And this is really open-ended, but it'll be interesting to talk about. Cold 187. <laughs> Where should my debt to income ratio be? Well, I don't know exactly what you mean by B, whether you're talking about buying your personal residence or buying an investment property, but I'm going to say either or. Let's open it up to everybody. We might have to imagine some things, right? Or we could just talk yeah. about. I mean, I think you guys really don't care. Debt to income. Yeah. Or I debt mean, service personal, coverage ratio or whatever, right? We, we have a, a, a PDTI, which is property debt to income ratio. Okay. So when you net insurance, taxes, mortgage, okay. And if there's a homeowners association, right. the homeowners fee, okay. Um, that property has to cash flow above the property debt to income ratio. You know, sometimes on a commercial side, it'd be referred to as a debt service coverage ratio, which includes those same things. Mm-hmm. Um, when we're talking about rental property, it needs to be 90%, which is really thin, yeah. which is really thin, i.e., all of the expenses can be 900 bucks, and the rent can be $1,000, and we'll do that deal. That is skinny. That is skinny. On a single family, that'd be maintenance probably. That's yeah. That's a skinny. That's a skinny deal, you know. Yeah. But that's where sometimes we'll do deals that no one else won't do, just for reasons like that. But we don't care about the personal debt to income ratio. Getting the, to your mm-hmm. point, Joe. Yeah. So I mean, we look at global ratio. Um, the hard and fast rule is it's somewhere between forty-five and fifty percent right now, depending on the strength of your credit, your reserves and the equity in the property. Most investors, if you have 680 or better credit, I don't have a problem getting you up to 50. Like it's really easy to do. Um, the hard part there is like, as far as like ethically speaking, that can be like, just because your debt to income ratio is good in my calculation, doesn't mean you can afford what's going on. Like child or child support gets counted in debt to income ratio, like required payment child support. But, like, you and the other partner are married and just supporting a family of a couple of kids. Those kids show up nowhere. I've seen people making $130,000 a year buying a quarter-million-dollar house in Canton that are like, man, that payment's going to be really tough for us. I've seen people buy that make $80,000 a year buying a $300,000 house saying no problem. You know, at the end of it, like, where should it be? Affordable. Like it, it, 
it even comes down to like your lifestyle in some ways, you know? And the, the example I use is like on a Friday night, you're going out for a burger, you go into McDonald's or Five Guys. One costs more than the other. That simple. Like at the end of the day, there is a level of personal responsibility there, mm-hmm. but you know, 50% is ultimately the magic number that I can generally get approved. I like that kind of threw a curveball there. All right. Next question. I know your name, but I'm not going to say it because I don't know if you want me to say it. O'Shea 512. Could I get a commercial blanket loan on a, she says grouping of houses, but on a package of houses that won't traditionally finance? I'm not entirely sure what she means by that last part. I've been trying to think yeah. of a scenario. Yeah. yeah, probably. We just did a deal for oh, seven. Can you think of one? Yeah. All right, good. Yeah, Go. well, so we just did a deal for seven properties all in Detroit, one loan. Um, it's just a question of writing a lot of mortgages, but it was on one note. Um, yeah, that's, that's no problem. I imagine it's the same for you guys. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. we do um, – and, and we have a couple options ourselves relative to if the deal doesn't fit our parameters. So I have some other sources of capital to use Wall Street funded money that will do blanket loans. On I just Detroit. thought of something. Don't let me forget. I have a direct referral to both you guys for this from a client who was just asking me. And I know he's probably going to have problems because he owns a bunch of he's got some good equity, but they're all in Detroit. Right. So I think he's going to have a hard time going through a, a the, regular. The challenge bank. with blanket loans in Detroit that I see, um, you know, you guys may see something different, is what's the minimum values, right? So you can't say, well, okay, I'm going to do a loan for 500000 a blanket loan for 500 houses, right? They're like. Well, that due diligence would kill you. Yeah, the due diligence would kill you, but they're like, we're not going to do garbage, you know, so most lenders will have a minimum asset value that they want to see per property. You know, so someone came to me um, on a deal. The average house value is probably like forty two, forty three thousand dollars, and they based the purchase price of the portfolio. And this was like a seventy seventy uh, house portfolio on I want to say like forty four or forty three thousand per house. But when I put it through my software, I did a sample of, because I wasn't running 70 houses. That was going to be too much. So I just did like 10. And I'm like, dude, you got a problem. You know, because, you know, statistically, right, this sample size, if your whole portfolio looks like this, you got at least half these houses that are under 30,000. And they're, and the lender's going to say that can't go in the portfolio. You know, now the flip side of that, Take my lender hat off, put my investor hat on. Why am I paying forty three thousand per property if this particular property is only worth twenty seven? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We get around that problem uh, basically basically by collateralizing other properties that you may not need funds for. Good but point. If they're worth more, then we can lend against them. Um, so yeah, and- creative way. So if you have a bunch of under, you paid too much, or it's below the amount they're willing to do if you have something else. Well, I'm going to throw this out there because I'm not going to say this person's name, but he would be looking. He bought a bunch of cash, 
because he's just conservative that way, right? So he would be looking to like refi some percentage of that out, and he's looking at specifically to grow his fix and flip business and his buy fix and rent business, right? So that's one of the ways I've been, you know, at my commercial real estate meetup. You know, a lot of them are, how do I get in? Like, how do I get my first commercial deal? I'm tired of doing, you know, houses. I want to do apartments. Or I just want to, you know, do commercial in general. Monopoly, right? And it's like, listen, if you got a portfolio of 20 houses, right, from from a lender perspective, that's 20 units. So you're not a, a, a inexperienced investor. You got 20 units you've been managing. You could do a blanket loan on those 20 units if you can pull out three, four hundred thousand dollars, that's your seed money to buy that small multifamily apartment. So you can bridge into it. That's the easiest way to do it. And it's in an LLC. And, you know, obviously. And there's some lenders out there. Um, now, we won't do it, but there's some that we will broker through that they'll do that blanket non recourse, yeah, which is fantastic. A million, you stop seeing personal guarantees. As a general rule, yeah, right, right. But there are some out there they'll go down to like five hundred thousand non recourse, which is fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I think it's that fair to say a name here because I think most of Metro Detroit knows it. But remember, Josh Sterling basically started with that exact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was this whole thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just did it over and over again. Yeah, repeatable processes too. Like it just things you can do. Sure, we could all want off a strategy, right? But those are not the best strategies for us. The strategies that we can use over and over again, maybe sometimes just under certain market conditions, those are always the ones we should go to because in a business, you're trying to do a repeatable process, right? Right, yeah. Yeah, I'm not trying to come up with some new fucking widget or new thing. I'm trying to take something somebody else has done a million times before and do that and just do it over and over again. And the most successful investors have a plan and a strategy and they stick to it. Yeah, and if yep. it meets my objectives, I'm doing it. And if it's outside of my objectives, I ain't doing it. Yeah. It's that well, criteria. Yeah. That's why my investment criteria is. I mean, I think another one to point to with that is uh, George. How do you say his last name? Patrick? Who knows? Yeah, George P. from the Facebook group. Everybody knows. Everybody go at him as a friend on Facebook. He's on the Metro Detroit Real Estate <laughs> he Investors immediately group. And he loves, he loves yeah. when people add him as friends on Facebook. So He really does. There's a little like, Easter egg there for you. <laughs> you look at all of his his rehabs, and for the most part, they're identical. Like He knows what he's going to do before he even comes close to buying that house because it's some modification of his core plan right. that fits that property. So he's got a plan, but it's still adaptable to, you know, work for the deal. Yeah, it's a cliche, but begin with the end in mind, right? Have a really yeah. good idea of what you want the end result to be and just don't do things that don't get you there. Right. All right. Next question. Some of these we we already asked. This is Jeff Rabinowitz, and he actually really wanted to be on the podcast. I'm sorry. You got to go? Okay, good. Um, But I'm going to have him on for the private lender one. But he had some really great questions. Some of them we already went over, right? Um, I would want to explore what products they can offer, fixed rate. ARMs, equity lines, cash out refis, etc. So what what let's just get all the products you guys out. He's interested in fixed cost fees, application fees, origination fees, are the fees due up front at closing? Can they be rolled into the loan? 
It's going to take a while. Yeah, yeah that's, that's all right. Wow. Uh, yeah. All right. For us, last we do fix and flips. We do buy and holds. We do cash out or refi, whatever you call it. Uh, we do 30 years on rentals. We also do commercial. Uh, we unfortunately haven't done a ton of them, but we do do commercial. Uh, I think that's it with regard to types of loans, but we're also creative and we we're in business to do business. So if you have something that nobody else can help you with, and if you can find us, uh, maybe you can hire green block. Um, yeah, I mean, we're, we're looking to get creative too. So, uh, with regard to fees, they're all pretty uniform. Uh, the only way we make money is through points and interest. All the other fees that we charge are pass throughs, uh, Documentation fees go straight to our lawyers, appraisal fees, inspection fees, closing fees, all that stuff goes to the people who are doing it. Um, we don't Can you charge. roll it in or do you got to pay up front for them? Uh, you have to pay up front. Any um, application fee though? Uh, we used to have one. We got rid of it. So uh, no application. We had it because basically we didn't want to receive a hundred different inquiries for every property on the MLS, but we found that it wasn't really an issue. So we got a, we got rid of it. Um, yeah, so basically it's, it's just pass through fees and points and interest. Joe. Yeah. Um, let's see here. Most of what I do is 30 year fixed conventional mortgages. Like I would say that's 99% of what I do for the Facebook group. The other 1% being tomes is farm. Um, (laughs) that was a deal. That was a cool deal. That was a cool deal. Yeah. Like. Um, that was like one of my favorite deals of all time because Tom's is like one of my best friends of all time. And we got perfect timing on the market. We pushed it and sold this other farm for a crazy ass price. And that's a whole crazy ass deal in and of itself. Yeah, it and was. we were doing it all at the same time when this one's going. It got some, it was some hairy shit there for a I minute. Was brand yeah. new at level one at the time. Yeah. Like this is like week two. Hey guys, I got this crazy deal. Yeah. Horse farm. Yeah. These horses have a fucking indoor arena with special sand and rod. These, th- if you have a horse, this is definitely where you want to board your horse. Right? Those horses like, live better than some people. Man, these th- they got lots of space. They got an indoor arena. I mean, this is this is a nice ass horse farm here. Yeah. You know? Um. Let's see. What else did Jeff want to talk me to talk? The about? horse arena is significantly bigger than my house. Like this thing is huge. Sorry, <laughs> oh, I just had to that's say because I rock. wonder. Like people were thinking, like, what are you talking? About? This thing is huge. Like it. <laughs> I want to say it was 20 something acres for the property. If I remember right. Um, it was like two years ago or a year ago now though. Let's see here. Arms like arms just don't price out well for me right now. Like 30 year fix, just the way the yield curve is right now on bonds. Mm -hmm. It long-term debts cheaper than short-term. So why would you take short-term take the stable, stable structure, which is an indicator of a coming recession. It it is by the way. Yep. Although like with the, with, Coming off a of QE3, like, that yield curve's been screwy. So I agree it's, with you, but there's a lot of people giving a counter-opinion yeah, right now. Yeah, it's consistent, though. It They, they always they follow. Yeah. Um, yeah. Fees-wise, like, I don't charge anything up front. I'll always talk to somebody. Like, if you're not ready, I'm happy to talk to somebody about, like, hey, this is where you are. This is what you'll need to do to even be starting to think about that and getting a loan. But, <clears throat> you know... I'm always happy to help somebody out. That's the real name of this game is help people and you'll win eventually because someone's going to come behind you and help you. Um, <clears throat> we charge for an appraisal when we order it. So that's the only thing you pay 
common lender usually charges about, I'd say, 800 to 1200 in lender fees. Um, at level one, we're 995. I'm trying to think what else you'll pay. Everything else is just third party, like transaction fees, title insurance. Title company is going to charge you a fee for actually doing their job, recording the mortgage. There's a couple other little BS ones in there, but it's under a hundred bucks. So if you're really worried about a hundred dollars in your mortgage on a real estate investment deal, real estate investing may not be for you. That's for damn sure. <laughs> yeah. Malcolm, before we get to you, yo, up, it's 1257. So before you go, yes, sir. I want to give you, cause yo, I've, I really appreciate coming in today, but you have to leave at one. And we got started a little late. Cause I came in from duck hunting a little late. <laughs> if, before you go, if you wanted to do, if there's something you wanted to do a shout out or you wanted to plug yourself or something you wanted to talk about before you go, obviously you guys will, will wrap up at the end, but I want to give you that opportunity now you. before you have to go. So, all right. Uh, and it could be anything. And just really- to add into the last thing, all of our loans are fixed rate. Um, yeah. So I, we started out flipping basically. Uh, we're happy to look at your deals. We'd love to talk to you. We, want to do more business. Uh, we want to lend to people in Detroit. We want to lend to people in Kalamazoo, Traverse City, uh, wherever the deals are, as long as you're not in Ohio or Indiana or outside of this great state, uh, we want to work with you. Sorry, um, OSU fans. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I live in Ann Arbor. Don't apologize. <laughs> Buckeyes. That, that's Sorry, Buckeyes. We're not working with you. No. Pack uh, sand, Ohio. That's right. Yeah, so we're we're in business to do business. We'd love to look at your loan. Uh, get in, get out, get paid. Greenblockinc.com. That's I-N-C. Greenblockinc.com. Awesome. Thank you, Yoav. All right. I really appreciate you taking the time out That's today to do it. Sorry, I started a little late. No, no, don't worry about it. Yeah, I appreciate I it, man. I have to go meet with the I know, I know. I was, that's why I was watching the time, man. I was watching the time it. for you. So even two minutes to spare, sir, 1258 ahead of schedule. Appreciate it. Good seeing you again, Yoav. Good to yeah. see you, too. Yeah. Good seeing you, man. We're almost yeah. done here, too. So, um, All right. Malcolm, so, products, fixed, arms, equity, all that. You remember the question? Yep. All right, shoot. Okay. Take it now. See you, Yoav. Thank um, you, sir. We do fixed rate products um, when it comes to our fix and flip, our rental loans, that kind of stuff. Um, we do also bridge loans on commercial, um, bridge loans on residential, where it's not a fix and flip situation, but you need to close fast. Uh, we will do that. Uh, we do industrial property uh, as well. We do also have lines of credit. Um, usually that's, those starts like the $500,000 range so that's usually for larger more experienced uh, investors um, relative to um, uh, fees and points you know we, we talked about that earlier um, we don't charge a, a fee up front um, it's just the appraisal so when it comes to you know our application fee um, is the appraisal fee you know and so you know got to put your big boy pants on pay for the appraisal pay for the appraisal yeah you know, was that like uh, four fifty, five hundred, five fifty, yeah, or something like that? More, yeah, commercials think. way more. Yeah. Commercials way more. But on a residential, it's going to be you know, let's say minimum five hundred bucks. You know, and depending on if it's a dupl- if it's a quad with a big scope of work, you know, you may be paying eight hundred bucks for that appraisal. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, now, if it's commercial, commercial appraisals are going to start. Yeah. 
at like twenty two, twenty five hundred bucks, and and go up from there. We will charge on this. This is again on commercial deals. Uh, we will charge a loan packaging fee uh, because on commercial, when you're talking about um, a rent roll and uh, operating statements for two, three years, and so forth, to again, you're talking about three, four million dollar loans. It's a different animal. Um, you have to put together a professional loan package. If you just fill out an application and get and turn in a rent roll that the seller gave you, you know, that's probably not going to get approved, you know. And so, um, uh, but uh, all the other fees, attorney's fees, doc fees, all that stuff, third-party fees has to get paid at closing, you know, same as, you know, everyone else. You know, something we talked about earlier, one of the ways that you know someone's going to gank you is if they're asking for big fees up front, you know. And if they have a fee, hey, everyone's in business to make money. I get it. But they should be able to clearly explain it yeah. without mumbling and fumbling and bumbling all over the place. Like by law, we can charge for a credit report fee up front. We don't, but we could. I, I understand that being explicable places that do. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. So, you know. They should be able to clearly, in writing, explain this is what it is and this is the, what it's going towards and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, I have had calls from multiple people who have had hard money lenders who charge $2,000 up front for, uh, and you get like a lifetime, you got to buy in to submit them. Yes. I've, I've got that call before too. Yeah. Uh, not something I would recommend. Um, I don't think they're all bad. But I think they're all mostly bad. I think it's a different way of making money. I think a lot of people do $2,000 who don't have a lot of money and would never probably qualify or couldn't find a deal yeah, in I and of like itself. In lending, there's enough margin generally that, you know, well, if you want to monetize, you're going to make zero on some deals you review, but it's kind of baked into the ones that you close. Well, I think they're trying to monetize all the people who can't usually do deals. I think that's the nicest that? way I could say it. Yeah, well, in, in, in on the commercial side, um, when you get an offer sheet from a lender, they're going to have a – now, some of them call it different things. It might be an application fee or underwriting fee or whatever, but there's going to be a deposit that you're going to have to turn in with that offer sheet. So if I'm trying to – you know, like I'm looking at that the Hampton Suites hotel through the window. If I'm going to finance that hotel and they say, yeah, we're, we're willing to give you the $5 million to buy that hotel at, you know, 6% interest, 25-year and blah, 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 turn in this offer sheet with a deposit of – and the number – and I'm gadgeting on that hotel. is probably going to be like $15,000. Right, because they're going to want you to pay as a deposit for the appraisal for the phase one, and they're in the mindset is they're trying to take the deal off the street. That's what we call it in the business. Okay, yeah, because once you put that kind of money up, how much shopping are you doing after? You're that? not, you're not yeah. shopping because you're talking yeah. hours and hours of due diligence time, and if the person is, is squeamish about fifteen grand and they're trying to get five million dollars, he's not a player. Yeah, how are they going to be when they see the rehab? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And if they, the phase one environmental I thing is going to be seven grand by itself, so it's like you know this is like the start of of many. And if you got an issue now, but it's all relative. You know, if it was a house, hey, five hundred bucks is appraisal for a house. Come on, yeah, that's you know that's not now. If I said hey, 
give me five grand or three grand or two grand. That'd be an issue. To me, that would be an issue. Yeah. It's a red flag anyway, right? Big Absolutely. red flag. They better yeah. be highly referred and have a reason they're doing it that way. Right. Right. All right. Um, we already went over how quickly you can close. Um, you guys, you care about credit. You don't. Commercial, um, by the way, commercial closing times are cold. Another set of uh, yeah, a bag of tricks. So a, a quick commercial closing is going to be like 60 days. You that know, would be that's, really fast. That's going to be that's going to be fast. You know, that's like a clean deal and clean deal with, with clean buyer, clean property, clean buyer, clean property with no issues. I had an SBA with perfectly referral from one of the guys in the group. Um, his buddy was buying a business, and SBA will finance the purchase of a business without real estate being uh, involved. Yeah, um, and that was like a seven figure deal. And he's like, I absolutely positively have to close, you know, by June, whatever date it was. And that was like literally like 58 days, you know, because he was getting a really good deal on the business and the owner knew it after he signed the contract. So he's like, there will be no extensions. There's no tomorrow. If I don't close on this date, he's going to pull it. And take it somewhere else, you know. And we closed within that time frame. And that was an SBA deal, you know. With so that was a full doc deal. But he was one of these borrowers that when I said, "Hey, I need this," got you everything immediately. The next yeah. day, he got it to me. Actually, going back to the other question, why does it take deals so long to fucking close? I bet a lot of time it's the borrower, mm-hmm. the borrower not getting information back to the. And we would have to throw lenders under the bus here. I just know right. humans. I know what my transaction coordinator's got to do to get a deal closed. It's like herding cats, right? right. Get all your stuff in that you need Sometimes. to get in. I bet a lot of times there's a, I bet on just about every deal, there's five to seven days where if you, if you as the borrower just would have got your shit together and got your stuff in quicker, things would have gone a lot quicker we, too. We had so a part of the way I designed my process was to make sure I had all the vendor stuff running. So that, yeah, if you take five days, whatever, you're burning the same five days the appraiser is. Exactly. Exactly. If you run these, some of these things you can run concurrent. You don't have to wait, but that gets the process. You know, the, that one apartment deal I mentioned earlier where it took them like three, four months to close. They would not move to step B until step A was done. Everything had to be in sequence. And I was like, why are we waiting? Yeah. To do this, we could have did this before. The, no, no, we had to. I'm like, oh my god, you guys are driving me nuts. But yeah. that was their process. It, you know, they closed. They did close, so you know. But they would not move out of. That sounds like an engineer. I'm not going. This to has to be done before we go here. Before we go three. here, and it just makes See, it long. But I had a situation years. with a land contract where the um, borrower got a payoff. Okay, and not the, not the borrower, the the seller had a payoff um, for a state tax lien, right? And it was like six grand. And so um, the title company let us know three weeks into the process, and we we're like, "You, yeah." So, um, but here was the thing: I call the borrower. I'm like, "Hey, where's your seller with the payoff? Because that's all we need." And we, because I was done with my with my end. Right. And he's like, I don't know. Let me call her. And she's like, I don't have the the six grand to pay the tax lien. I don't know what I'm going to do. And he's like, lady, 
we're going to pay that off at closing. You don't need the six grand now. She's like, oh, oh, okay. It just blew seven days, you know, because she didn't know. And that's why I wanted to throw the borrower a lot of times. Yeah. a lot of day at closing, too. Yeah. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. Can't believe absolutely. how long this took. I know it took me a week to get my stuff in, but geez, Louise, yeah, come on. Yeah. That's why I wanted to. I like throwing lenders under the bus, but I don't mind. I like throwing borrowers under the bus, too. It takes two to tango, usually. And I think probably more often than not, it's the borrower slowing up the deal. Um, I would say most times. And I've worked with a lot of investors, and I love them, and I love working for investors. About half of them really aren't timely at all. You know, that's kind of the reason why they are an investor. They kind of do things on their own time and that will add time to your deal. Right. It just does. But then you get the ones at the other end of the spectrum though, that I love those. Oh, and it's the engineers most of the time or people that have like analytical backgrounds like that. They'll have like every document you need in a network drive and you give them a list and they're like, yep, check, 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 send. Yeah. I love working for Ron. Like everything Kelly ever sends them is like done immediately. Just yeah. Yep. It's never wrong slowing up a deal ever, 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 ever. And then other people are like, yeah, can I do that on Monday? It's like six days away. Like, no, <laughs> no, not really. No, not yeah. so really. I can't like, you know, yeah. Why are we doing this, man? Like, I, I think personally two days is pretty fair for a request. Okay. You're busy today. Maybe you're slammed tomorrow, but like right. if you can't find a half hour to put together whatever set of documents or an hour, Unless you're just an insane deal and then like your document pack should have been figured out ahead of time. I try and get people to get ahead of it. Like, yeah. oh, you're thinking about it? Here's here's some stuff you can go well, do right now whether you do it or not. Like my well, get ahead. If people are detail-oriented, they miss stuff. You know, a guy sent me a deal this week. He's buying a multifamily apartment building. And I said – he sent me the rent roll back and I gave him a form, you know, because – Sometimes what the seller gives you is insufficient, right? So here's my rent roll. Now, my form includes a operating statement with the rent roll, right? So he sent me his, his rent roll back and said, is this good enough, right? And I replied by email, no, I need my form. So he's like, okay, okay, fine. So eight hours later, he sends me my rent roll filled out. Right. And I'm like, okay, where's the operating statement? Right. And he's like, well, you talking about the, you know, the, the, the operating form for me or something like that. And I'm like, no property, the property. It's on the second half <laughs> of the form I sent you. It was, and it says in the, in the name of the file, right. When you open up that PDF, it's a fillable PDF it says multifamily rent row plus operating statement. He's like, oh, my bad. I missed the second yeah. page. There was only, there's only two pages too, right? Yeah. So, yeah, there's only two pages. One, one. So he had, to, he had to go back. But sometimes that stuff happens, mm-hmm. you know. But even then, I'm the way he's been relatively prompt on the other stuff, I would expect Monday morning I'm going to have that operating statement. Yeah. That'll do, that's a deal that will get done within that 60-day window versus it takes him to next Friday to get it to Yep. Yeah, everyone deals to close faster, move faster. I mean, especially purchases. Like, you know, my conversation generally ends one of two ways after my initial interview. Here's what you need to work on or here's what I need to get this done. And then when it's here's what I need, 
I always send the client like just a canned email that I have written up of the list of documents I need. You know, I go through and modify it for them. But especially for a purchase, biggest thing I tell you is have all the documents back to me before you make the offer. One, personally, I amend my prequal letter to basically say, yeah, I've looked at this stuff and you don't need to sell anything if that's true. Right. But two, when somebody like Jeremy calls me and I can say, yeah, I've read their pay stubs, I've read their tax returns, the money's in the bank account except for five grand that they're getting as a gift, and like I don't see any problems here other than the property, it's a way better conversation. Way better. Especially with you as a listing agent. Because you way are a better. of a listing agent. Yeah. Um, it's way better than saying, yeah, it sounds good. Like, I can call and tell anybody I make 60 grand a year. Nobody makes 60 grand a year. It's always $59,840. Right. Right. Yes. Right. And you know what? Sometimes that 158 bucks, yes, it can matter. Yeah, if you're at 50% and that puts you to 51%, right? That's one of the things that, that I do a little different is uh, I send out a flow chart. So they That's get. Smart. I've they get a, a, a an application, obviously, you know, loan commercial loan application, but then they also get a loan process flowchart that says, "Here's step one. We're going to do this, and here's step two, and here's step three. So they can see at the beginning, here's how things, and then you know who's responsible at That's each a state. Damn good idea. I you know that for myself, actually. Yeah, yeah, and set I've, the expectation up front. Here, here's a good yeah. visual for you. Here's what it's going to look like. I should do that too. Right. Right. It it helps out a lot. I like pictures too. I'm not going to lie. You know, I'd rather look at a picture than read step one, step two, step three, too. So just from a practical standpoint, probably easier to follow. I'm like, oh, I understand now. Well, and it saves some communication issues, right? Well, Malcolm, what's going on? We need this. Well, go see that flowchart. See who I said I needed all these documents to move it to here. Yeah. I can't. Go from here to here. Someone just, I'm working on a deal. It's a fix and flip. We're, they're, they're doing the inspection today. Mm-hmm. Um, they want me to order an appraisal, right? They paid the deposit for the appraisal. I say, great. I can't order it till I get the scope of work back. Because how are we going to figure out ARV, right? Right. So it's like, oh, because like, what's next? You got to give me the scope of work. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. That's right. And the, okay, did you get the insurance? Oh, doggone, I forgot about that. In in some way, it's kind of like doing a contracting job where the methodical procedural approach is a lot better than rushing to every which way. Yes. Especially ahead of time. Yeah. So he, Jeff asked a really great question here. So if you have a poor borrower, a weak borrower, right? Um, do you guys do co-borrowers or co-signers to help someone who has poor credit? Or maybe not enough assets? Um, the key term is guarantor, right? So, you know, te- that's the technical term. You can say co-signer. It's the same thing. Yep, guarantor. But a technical is, is guarantor. Somebody else signing on the line. Someone saying, else signing on the line. They're not just a partner. They're just, okay, I'm going to fund you all this money. And you're going to do everything. No, he needs to sign as guarantor, he needs to be on the LLC with you, and you you got to have, by the way, an operating agreement on that LLC, and it better be in good standing. Which should go without saying, it should. but I'm saying it. It happens a lot. Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to say like a third of the time at least. Yeah. How have you 
not done your annual renewal in 10 years. I've met people, exactly. I've met people, I was like, really? It's $25 in a sheet of paper, guys. Have you filed a tax One sheet of paper. One. And it's like six lines. And you're not disclosing anything. You're just signing and paying the twenty five dollar fee. You're not telling them. It's not like a tax return where it takes you hours to do it. It's just here, sign my name, pay the fee, and you you can have a representative do it for you. Right. Yeah. Like you do but any co-signer. That needs to be done ahead of time. Yeah. Like when you apply from the get go. Yeah. Yeah. Don't apply to us, and you haven't gotten to get it in good standing first. Yeah. Talk about unseeing stuff, right? They see yeah. that your LC is not in good standing. That's true. That does that not looks look good. horrible. Yeah. And they look at like the application date. Like if you do it a couple of days before versus a couple of days after, I know for me, like that can make a huge difference from Absolutely. between how annoying an underwriter wants to be about stuff. Yep. That goes back to my point. I don't want to give reasons to underwriters to question things. Like the more you do up front, mm-hmm. like same thing like on a flip. I always tell people do the lawn, <laughs> cut the grass. Hire a professional cleaner, clean the inside. Like, let's not give any additional reasons for people to look beyond what we're doing. Where if it's a dirty house and things aren't right, I do believe people walk in looking for more reasons to, because it's not going to look good in the photos, right? And then they're going to have to come up with an explanation. Right. So they're looking for one while they're in there, right? Versus coming, everything looks pretty. You walk on the inside, even if it's not the prettiest house, it could be the cleanest house. Right, like every little inch mm-hmm. you can get to not have someone explain something, because I think a lot of under, like a lot of the problems with underwriters, they they don't want to explain things, and if they have to, that's almost never good, right? And they're not the risk taking type. That's where they're a freaking underwriter, you know. Exactly. They're not you or I, you know. Like right. ah, it's a thousand dollars. No, they're not. Right. They don't see it that way. You right. know, if they could sell, they'd have our job. Yes. So uh, I've met a few that can sell. They just. They're risk adverse, so they want the stable salary, not you know variable wage. Right. Um, do you always do payments, or can people not do payments sometimes? One of the questions I forgot—I can't remember if we answered this one—but I know Yoav always does payments. We right? do payments. Okay, always do payments. Mm-hmm. Okay. Obviously, Joe yeah, always, always do payments. Yeah. Um. We already answered that question. How much does experience affect the rate? For you, it does. Can the same rate be obtained by partnering with someone who has the required experience if the borrower does not have it? I think we answered that question, too. Yeah, they can. Yes, they absolutely. Get the top rate if the yeah. other guy's got it. Yeah. From my perspective, it's really the lower. Like, Take your three credit scores. Look at the middle score for each borrower, be it two or more. Whatever one of those is the lowest, that's what we're using for pricing. That's what we're using for qualifying. So... Well, that's the last official question that I have. I wanted to throw out a statement, and then we can open it up for anything. How I approach business is I look at my vendors like partners, and I think a lot of people don't. They look at it like I went to the grocery store, and I bought a gallon of milk. And a gallon of milk at Kroger is a gallon of milk at Meyer is a gallon of milk at Trader Joe, right? Um, and I get a lot of questions this way, and I think we can tell based on the questions that at least half of them were probably leaning that way, and we kind of touched on it. If everybody tells you no and they won't give you money for your deal, it's probably a bad deal, and you go, I would recommend not doing business with people that you don't think 
would be a good partner for your business. I'm not saying bring them into your business, right? But I generally don't work with people almost ever unless I can do repeat business. Mm Because part of it is like, hey, known entity, time. Like we get better at it the more I know right. I have high expectations or like there's right. no questions, great communication, right? At least half these questions led me to believe they were thinking a gallon of milk is a gallon of milk is a gallon of milk. And I just wanted to throw it out there that especially if you want to grow, that if you're going to use vendors, build relationships and hire vendors who add a lot of extra value. And then it's not just a gallon of milk. Or a you cup know? of coffee. Yes, or just a cup of coffee. That's a good right? one, too. Yeah. You think coffee's all the same? Go get one at the gas station versus going to Starbucks or... Hazano. Hazano. Yeah. I poured out a cup of coffee from here at the Keller Williams office to drink a half a cup of Jeremy stuff. That's right. I buy the good shit from Hazano. Is C-H-A-Z-Z. it all coffee? Yeah, technically, yeah. it's all coffee, but all coffee is not the same yes and and when i do my commercial real estate meetup my co-organizer is a commercial realtor and that's all he does he's principal associates devon jackson great guy um you need a team of people that's how you scale and go fast and do a lot of deals when you got a well-oiled machine whether it be your contractors whether it be your attorney you know, you know, I, I've had attorneys slow up deals. It was like all we needed is one sheet of paper, and the guy took four or five days. Yes, right. It's like, come on, man. How I, much money did you save? Using I could have went guy. on Legal Zoom, right, and got that thing done <laughs> in ten minutes. But my borrower elected to pay you five hundred dollars, and you still gonna take five days? Really? Yeah. I mean, it's last party to get to the title company is the one that determines the closing date, really. And when you have people that you work with before, there's a clear expectation and you don't have to have the extra delay of questioning someone's motives. Well, why is this working this way? Well, no, I've done a ton of deals with him. I know he's got it covered. He's going to figure it out. I remember I was working on a deal and we got to the end and there was a couple of issues and the, the attorney issue came up and, um, the borrower said something. I'm like, let me tell you something. There's about four fires that I put out that you don't even want to know about. Do you want me to tell you? This happened, this happened, this happened. I do that shit all the time. I, I never say a word. It yeah. would freak you out. And if I could, the fire comes up and I put it out and it's done in eight hours, we move on to the next thing. You know, and he's like, okay, I get it. I get it. Because there's some stuff, yeah, do you need to know? Okay. But if we got it addressed and we moved on. No sense in clouding your brain with that, but that's part of a team. And if you got a team that you trust that can handle it, and the guy says, you know what, I got it, I'll get it taken care of, I don't have to worry about it no more. But if you don't know a guy, you worry about it. You worry about it. Yeah. I worry about it. I'm, I like you said, need to know. I'm 100% need to know. If there was a problem and we got it fixed, I don't have to tell you about it and I'm probably not going to, because I figure the reason you hired me as a professional is to reduce the number of problems in your life, not 
call and tell you every time I solve the problem for you, right? Like it's it's expected from a professional that things come up and you deal with them, you know? I think it also depends what the problem is. I mean, if it's something like a lean issue that you extinguish and is gone forever, yeah, I don't want to know about that as your buyer. But if it's something that's going to impact me down the road, potentially, that that's the other side of it is then I need to know. Well, that's a different kind that's, of problem. That's a different problem. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know about you guys, but I've worked with drama kings and drama queens Yeah, who Funny. they'll take a problem and they'll blow it up bigger than it is. So that they look good saying, oh, look at all the stuff I did for you. And then the rest of us are sitting around the table. It was like, really? That's just shit you do every Dude, that day, was man. Email you said. Yeah. That was, yeah, that's like a Tuesday issue. I yeah. mean, that's not that big a deal. I love that. And that's blowing, like 1230 on Tuesday. I didn't yeah. even think about it after 1235. Yeah. And they're blowing it up. It's like, why are you causing all this drama? We could address this thing and move on. Because I always, you know, sometimes with a deal, something is going to go sideways. You just don't know what. Sometimes you just don't yep. know when, right? Maybe it's at the beginning with the negotiating the price down and getting that addendum that you need signed and all this other stuff. Sometimes it's at the end. It could be the title company issue. It could be an attorney issue. Who knows? But sometimes it's, it's a matter of when. And I always tell my borrowers, I don't know when the boogeyman's going to jump out and scare the bejeebus out of you, but it's going to happen, right? And then invariably when it does and they're freaking out. I says, didn't I tell you a boogeyman was going to come out? This is your boogeyman, right? Don't freak out. It's not real. Yeah. <laughs> right? Fear isn't real. Calm down. We're going to address it. You'll move on. We'll still close. You had to pull that out of me on Glint a couple of times. I did, yeah. yeah that, that was a hairy one, though. That was, that, was, uh, that was definitely. Top 10 hardest deals I've ever worked on. Yeah. Yeah. That was. Uh, to me, though, see, that's the good thing about. Jordan Peterson says this a lot of times the thing that's best for you is the thing you would never pick. In fact, if you heard it, you might think it was the worst idea you ever heard. The good thing about going through everything that I went through, just right across the board. Something goes wrong. Good. Something goes good. Good. That's yeah. just, it's the same fucking thing. All exactly. deal dies. Good. Yeah. I get to sell it again. Deal accepted. Good. I get to move on to the next deal. Fell apart in appraisal. Good. I get to challenge this and get a little bit like, it's just, I don't care. I can manage my, but that's not how I started. I was up, down, up, down. Every deal was, uh, and then uh, some of that's just like working out. All right. You get to a point Well, I went through so much shit. Now it's just like, whatever, what I got backup plans to backup plans to backup plans. That just, that's how, and I don't, I just don't worry. It's going to get handled it's one like way or Bruce another. Lee. Be like water, right? <laughs> Be like water. Be strong, but conform, yeah. right? Around the issue. I got a, a out-of-state investors doing a deal. He's probably, I think we probably got about four deals in the hopper right now at various stages. And the very first deal, the appraisal came back light a lot. And he's like, oh, my God, this is going to blow up my deal. Da, 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 da. I was like, go talk to the seller, you know? Maybe the seller dropped the price. There's no way this guy's going to eh, listen. Got to ask. You got to ask. Get another go. Just go talk to the seller. I'll see what we can do on our end. You know, maybe trying to appeal the appraisal value or whatever. Mm-hmm. But you need to go back talk to the seller. You know, emails me back three days later. Oh my god, he took the deal. Yeah, of course. You know, and the deal was. I think we we're buying it for like one 
140, 150, something like that. And they end up settling at 112. You know, and so like, okay, now you wanted to cuss the appraiser out. That appraiser now that appraiser just load. saved you a boatload of money. Yep. Right? Probably saved your deal too. Yeah. Right? Say thank you. You went back so and asked. Sometimes right? that thing you think is horrible. It's the best thing that ever happened. the best thing ever happened. Yep. Well, that's all I have, guys. Now is your opportunity. We can talk about anything you want to talk about that we haven't talked about. If you had something and or you can certainly plug anything you would like to plug. Now is kind of like your opportunity. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for sharing your information. And, and for those listening, this is on their Saturday in the middle of the day. So and they didn't get paid shit. They had to drive here. I did give them coffee. But I was also late duck hunting, right? So they, they went out of their way to come in and do this. So do you guys have anything or you want to plug anything? Anything you want to talk about? Um, no, I, listen, I appreciate the opportunity to come in and, and, and talk about what I do. It's fun, you know, uh, uh, being here with, with fellow comrades in arms. Yeah, it's weird how right? different our, our structures are. Yeah, but we're That's in the game. I love about this you know, business, and I, I love about this business. I, I was I was meeting with Mike. Uh, uh, I won't say the rest of his name, but one of the guys is at our, our group meetings all the time. Yesterday, and he was like, "Yeah, man, because this is the game, you know. And sometimes deals work, sometimes they don't. You never know the ins and outs, the ups and downs, you know. But as long as you got good players on the field, you know, it's fun playing." I don't know what the score is going to end up at, right? Or if we're going to even win the game. But oh, we're I, going to fucking win, Malcolm. I promise you. Right. But, if I, <laughs> but if I got good guys that I'm playing the game with, we might know, not win every game, though. We're not winning every game. We're going to win the season. We're going to win the season. We get the championship. Yeah. But you know, if we got a good team around us, we're going to have fun playing the game because we're not doing, you know, we're not running a Tim Hortons. No. Right. This is the real estate game, and every day is going to be different. Every deal is going to be different, you know. I would say the thing I, I, that I would want to promote is we do have a commercial real estate meetup. Yeah, you got multiple meetups, right? Yeah, let people know. Meetups. Yeah, the first and third Thursday of every month at the Nomad Grill. It's attached to the Premier Best Western in Southfield. We meet. Some of you guys seen our pictures that I posted on the group. Those meetings have been packed. You know, we're literally we've got like four or five. Uh, uh, chairs left, you know, that's usually about 35, 40 people, you know, and we do it at a level where someone who's interested in commercial could come in and sort of get in where they could fit in, you know, um, and we talk about the market, we talk about how deals are getting done, you know, like today, you notice I kind of talk about deals that we're working on, you know, real deals, um, so people know this is what other people are doing, because I think the secret sauce is, if folks know what best practices are, there's a lot of ways to do deals, but what are the actual most successful people doing to make their deals happen? That's where you can get in front of things rather than always playing catch up. Oh man, I wish I would have done that. I wish I could have did that. It's like, Oh, someone did that deal that way. Oh, maybe I ought to think about doing that on my next deal or the deal I'm presently negotiating on. The first meeting is generally on the first meeting of the month is generally on the market or deal structure. Um, buying and selling, negotiating, that kind of thing. This third, the meeting, the second meeting of the month, which is the third Thursday, is usually on finance. So how are guys putting deals together? How are they financing? You know, what are they doing to bring it to the close? 
Um, I have a meetup we do at Level One Bank on Maple and Telegraph. That is the Focus on Business meetup. That's the second Tuesday of the month at noon. That's in the middle of the day. That meeting is focused around entrepreneurship. So those who are out there who are self-employed entrepreneurs, how to make it happen. We'll talk about things like marketing. Our last meeting, we talked about how you use Meetup to book up your calendar where you become part of a group mm-hmm. and you message other members and you book up appointments and you, you know, without actually ever going to a meetup, you know, and we, we've gone over like video marketing. You know, I have my own YouTube channel. Plus I post, um, um, videos on LinkedIn and on Facebook. And we use a program called Lumen, which is an AI artificial intelligence program where you could put in the text and it will create the video for you. And then all you have to do is go back and edit it. Um, that's a whole nother thing that we need to get, which is valuable if you're trying to figure out how do I create content to put my name out there. Content is key. Content is key. Content uh, is first. It has to be. Everything else can be great. Yeah. But if you don't have content, it don't really. It Where are the breadcrumbs back to you in the digital age? You brought up an excellent point that I was going to talk about earlier. Sorry to interrupt here. But for people who are introverted, or not social, I know you pay a high price. As scary as it can be or as difficult as it can be for you to go out and attend these meetings, I think we all demonstrated how important it is to at least sometime get out, no matter how difficult it is, and be social and network. You don't have to be social butterflies like us. We're all very... Joe is like an introvert extrovert, right? But the re- we're very, I'll talk all day about real estate. I mean, we're yeah. very extroverted people. Right. So it's easy for us, but the point still stands. I've learned so much from networking from other people. I'm not sure I've had an original idea. Even this podcast, or even my meeting was a reaction to other meetings I went to. Mine too. Mine too. I started my commercial uh, real estate meetup two years ago because I went to a multifamily meetup at the Crown Plaza downtown. The organizer didn't even show up. Was, Why am I not surprised? There was like the there was like ten so or twelve of us there, and it was a good group. And so we acted as adults. Well, okay, he's not here. Let's make up our agenda. Let's make and we ran our own meeting. That's hilarious. At that time, right? <laughs> That was like in, I want to say. Looks like uh, I got a meetup. That was in, uh, I want to say like May. Thanks everybody for coming today. May or June. And then I was waiting for the June meeting. Man, that was a good meeting. You know, and I was going to go to the June meeting. And then he didn't have one. You know, and then the July meeting, he was scheduled offline. You know, as a conference call. And then they were selling like a a mentorship thing, you join for six grand. And the guy was like, yeah, we've done, you know, $10, $12 million in commercial real estate. We were, I'm like, come on, man, $10, $12 million. Really? That makes, that's not that much in commercial. No, it's not. Right. So I was like, okay, whatever. In that July, I'm like, forget it. And I started my own meetup. We had like, and I had enough of a network, you know, we had eight people there. You know, and then went from eight to twelve to sixteen to twenty to forty, you know, and we've been cruising um, um, ever since. You know, and then the, the, I was going to mention the third meetup we do is on business credit because not enough lenders are talking about how to get approved for loans. Eighty-five percent of commercial loan applications are denied. That's like the industry 
standard. You know, so we talked about how do you get not only approved, but here's the things that will get you disqualified, right. slickered and snot. If I had a 15% pull through rate, I'd kill myself. Right. Yeah. So oh my here's God. the things that you need to not put on an application, right? That you, it's not that bad. No, it's horrible. <laughs> it's horrible. See, you, know, you should go socially network people. Absolutely. I get an example. Do not, under any circumstances, put your business address as a P.O. box or a UPS store. Lenders hate that. It's like you're trying to hide out and, you know, uh, be Mr. Robot. You know, yeah. Be Mr. No, no. I mean, extremely rural areas I could see an exception for. But, yeah, like, why isn't your place of business your mailing address? Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And, then, and and you can do it through a virtual office for very inexpensive dollars a month. Have a real commercial address. In this building, there's a virtual office company. I think it's an intelligent office. Um, runs a suite. Oh, no, no, no. I take the bank. It's the building across the street. Yeah. 900. They run a location on a real small amount of money. You got a real commercial address. you know. And if you happen to actually need a meeting, you have a professional place to bring someone to. And all you have to pay is like the 50 bucks an hour for the conference room if you need it. You know, so we go through all the different ways that you can maximize your application to get approved for credit and then the different tiers of credit that you need to step to so that one day you can have anywhere from a hundred to two hundred fifty thousand dollars of access to capital when you need it. Because you can't wait, and I get this call probably once every other month. Hey, I just got this new contract. And I need this, you know, hundred thousand dollar line of credit to back my business to fulfill the contract, and I got to have it in two days. Good luck, Kind of like asking for a condom after she's pregnant, isn't it? It is too late. Too late. Too late. Too late. I think it, people procrastinate. If people just did the shit they needed to do, I know we're all meat sacks, right? And we're all right. just trying to get along. But yeah, begin with the end in mind and start. Even if you're not prepared now, go out to these meetings and start. Read a book, start networking. Don't lie either. Say, yeah, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm just starting. I just wanted to come say hi. You'd be surprised how friendly people are. I'm always friendly to those people. I encourage those people Mm -hmm. to come out. I know I'm a big, scary guy, and I shut down. I don't suffer fools. Just don't be a fool. There's nothing wrong with stupid. I've been stupid. In fact, I'll be stupid again. I guarantee it. (laughs) It is going to. Welcome to the club. You're in good company, right? Right, right. I just happen to be a little less stupid than you. That's really the only. And we're warm. We're welcoming. Come out. Anybody treats you bad, just don't go back to that one again, right? They just cross them off the list. No reason to go back. Go to another one. We put out a lot of content between our meetups, um, our website, you know, everyone who comes to our business credit uh, meetup, they get a free ebook on how to establish business credit. So we, we, you know, we throw out a lot of content, and the, the consequence of that is my phone rings every day. Yeah, that's the goal, right? That's the goal. Yeah, you know, I think it's just amazing with investors how like we're so fiercely competitive with each other to get the deal. But then as soon as like somebody actually bags the deal, and we like, okay, that's their deal. Like, I feel like the vast majority of the community is happy, like, to go right to the person they were competing with and try and help support them to be successful. Hell yeah, I've lost out on a lot of stuff. You can't win them all. No, you can't win them all. Can't win them all. I wish I could. It's just, it's not how it works. Yeah, but then the really amazing part is how, like, even the people you were competing with 
will still like come help you. And like, if you need a perspective on a job or a problem, plenty willing to help. Yes. It's such a great community like that. Right. Well, it's like the call I mentioned earlier, you know, I couldn't help the guy, but then I told him, this is what you need to do. Go out and do this, 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 and this, and get the connections, get the knowledge you need. I do that be, all the time too. To be successful. You know, I'm not I might not meet with money. you in person all the time. That's why I have a meeting or I go to so many networking meetings. I can't meet every, but I will talk to anybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I will talk to anybody. And if we talk long enough, we probably will eventually meet. Right. Right. So like, don't be shy, folks. Don't be well, shy. And, and I'll say this too for me personally. I do a lot of meetups, so sometimes people want to come in and, you know, have a meeting. And sometimes, like, I don't necessarily have time for that because I am really, really, really busy. Yeah, running running a meeting is just, a lot of work. What it means a lot of work, <laughs> lot as of you work. know. You got to market, yes. you got to promote it, you got to make sure yep. it's, you know, it's a lot of work. Especially then, you want to do it well, right? You, yeah. Yeah. Right, right. Plus, you know, I'm doing loans. So it's not like I'm sitting at home watching ESPN. <laughs> right? <laughs> I wish I could. Well, no, I don't. I don't wish I had the time to do it. Right. <laughs> but, but so sometimes what I'll do a lot of times, I'll say, listen, you know, okay, you want to meet next week? Tuesday at noon, I'm going to be at Level 1 Bank from noon to 1, right? You can come to my meetup or we can meet right before or we can meet right, right after. after. Yeah. Yeah. You know, probably my, especially my commercial real estate meetup will start at 630. Just last week I had a meeting with someone at Nomad at 5 o'clock. Because what ticks me off is fighting through traffic, right? And then they're late. Yep. And now we're short on time. Well, and then you da, da, da. ready to and be presentable. <laughs> like, and that, that takes time. Like, if it takes you 45 minutes to get ready and get somewhere for an hour meeting, and then it takes you 45 minutes to get back, that's a two-and-a-half-hour meeting. If you can back it up to something like a RIA, now you got – Two meetings in, and really, I mean, the RIA probably counts as more than two meetings. Right. But you still had all the same prep time. Well, and my desk doesn't look like – like this desk that we're talking at, you guys can't see it. There's nothing on it but mics and a board. Okay. My office, right, does not look like this desk. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. So I got to have a meeting. Now I got to, you know, get this – no, no, no. Let's just meet when I'm already out there. And then what I will also do is I'll do a Zoom meeting, which is really effective. You know, you guys ever use Zoom? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I'll use it's a video, it's a video conference. Yeah, video okay. conferencing. Okay, but I can share my screen with you. Got it. So you're on your laptop, I'm on my laptop, and then I can pull up, you know, a loan program or I can pull up a document and show it to you. You know, I can send you an email and in real time we can go back and forth, you know, and, and that's just as effective as someone actually coming into an office and, and meeting. Because the other thing is, if if I know I got a meeting, and even though the person may not be there, my mind isn't focused totally on what I'm doing. Because I'm thinking Jeremy's going to be here in five minutes, so I can't really dive in with abandon if I know he's going to walk in five minutes from now. If it's a Zoom meeting, you know I can do what I'm doing. And then if you missed the meeting, no water off of my back. Yep. Because I was working anyway. That's a good point. A lot yeah. of meetings don't show up. Joe, you got anything you want to plug or anything you want to talk about or add? Or uh, Let's see. Nothing really to plug. I want to talk about the fat down. We're doing that. What is that? Next Saturday? Yeah, the 18th. Yeah, I'm getting. You're going to smoke prime rib. I am. 
that's going to be good. It is going to yeah, be good. Yeah, we're going to do that at Glen. Uh, come check out this fourplex. Jeremy and I just maneuvered through one of the most Where's interesting it at on properties. Um, or one of the most interesting deals I've done. It is west of the lodge. It is the last house before the lodge on the north side. Okay. Couldn't be any closer to Boston S, and that's another reason I liked it. Like, if you're going to stretch and go, like, right right across, like, right on the other side. So, yeah, we're going to be barbecuing in the back alley. Uh, Props out to DeQual Lee for clearing out that yard. He did a yard clean out for me the last two days, and then he's actually coming back Monday. Like, I was walking down that alley, and I was like, no, not in my neighborhood. Going to come back and just do the entire alley all the way out to Woodrow Wilson. In fact, I spent most of my morning today fighting with DT and Comcast that they need to pay attention to that alley some. Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. They don't I mean, give a shit, is, though. It is just not acceptable back there. And yeah. There's just no way I'm going to live like that. So it'll get done even if I have to write the check. You're like me. You know how much garbage I pick up on my street on Losser? Like, I just... Oh, my God. I never... Not- I just can't handle it, man. I, I just every time I was like, and I'm going to keep doing it till I die. And maybe, yeah, maybe. I don't think you and I live that far from each other. I'm like uh, Grand River and Losser, like three blocks north of the old Redford Theater. Lost. Yeah, no, you're right. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're just mid, mere minutes away from me. Yeah, yeah. yeah, pretty much Chicago in the lodge, obviously. Yeah, you're, you're way closer now. <laughs> yeah, I <am>. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be seeing a lot more of Joe. Yeah. Um, and then, I mean, I'd love to thank the Metro Detroit Real Estate Investor Group, um, Renegades. Like, I mean, I walked into a meeting 15 months ago with you guys for the first time. I mean, relatively unknown in the room. And it's just been amazing for me. And thank you. Um, in particular, I'd like to thank Shelly and Brian Donner. A lot of people don't know this. They're the ones that actually, like, told me about the Metro Detroit Real Estate Group. and. I mean, that thing has been that's a great altering group. for me. Yeah, that's a like, great I group. I can't even begin to fathom doing my mortgage career without that group anymore. It's literally the only group I pay attention to. Like if somebody posts and I get the notification and I'm not doing a meeting, I look. Yeah. And I just ignore every other group or I'm not even a part of it. Like that's a damn good group like it is the only truthfully it's the only meetup that i attend outside of my own because you know i've got between my other meetups i'm doing like five meetups a month yeah that's a lot you know so doing one i attend five that's hard yeah but i do your matter of fact my focus on business meetup used to be on the same tuesday it was the first tuesday and i moved it because doing my own meetup, I would be, by the time my five o'clock roll around, I'd be wiped out. And I just wouldn't have the energy. Yeah, doing two a day, that's, to come, especially if it's a couple hours, you know, that's hard. Yeah, yeah, doing my own. Beyond. Then working around, doing all the stuff during the day. And then to come to yours, it'd be too much. So I said, you know what? I'm moving it. So we changed. We used to be on Woodward and um, uh, I think it was Woodward and 16. Um uh, and we went to the level one at Maple and Telegraph. And so when I moved it to Maple and Telegraph, I said, I'm changing the day. You know, so that I won't have an excuse <laughs> <laughs> not to make RDI. Yeah, to miss it. Guys, thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks for coming on the Saturday. I want to thank my guests, Joe Randall, Malcolm Turner, Yoav Galat. He had to leave already. Thank you so much for your time today. Folks, definitely go check out what they're working on. Joe Randall, mortgages by joerandall.com, 2Ls, 810-434-3327. 
Malcolm Turner, 248-579-8175, extension 1, castlecommercialcapital.com, facebook.com forward slash castlecommercialcapital, and look him up on LinkedIn, just Malcolm Turner, all right? And then Yoav Galad, 323-230-0499. These are all in the show notes, folks, too. And that's Y Galad, G-I-L-A-D, at greenblockinc.com, greenblockinc.com. Folks, if and you – oh, sorry, go ahead. And YouTube. You can find us on YouTube at castlecommercialcapital.com. Sorry about that. That one, for some reason, didn't copy over. Um, I'll make sure I add that to the show notes so that way it is it is there. Folks, if you enjoy this podcast and you would like to support it, if you don't enjoy this podcast, why the fuck are you listening to it? Go away. <laughs> Go away. Go do something else, man. There's a lot of podcasts on the, you know, so, but I'm assuming if you listen this deep in, you probably got something out of it. So hook a brother up, rate and review on iTunes. That really does help. Also reach out to the people on the podcast, right? That also helps share it. You could also hire me to list and sell your house. Um, or if you're looking to buy a house, I have a team now. So I got, I have a buyer's agent as be a personal home or an investment home either, or you can refer people to me. Or if you have a wholesale deal, send it my way. RenegadeDetroit.com, meetup.com forward slash Renegade Detroit Investors, Facebook.com forward slash Detroit Investment Club, 313-600-2133. Shout out to Joe, who's actually in this room. I want to thank Joe for he bought the Renegade Detroit Investors podcast table. So I had a nice table to sit at that's the right height, that's comfortable, that makes people feel good. Go to mortgagesbyjoerandall.com. Thank you, Joe. And as I wrap up this podcast, I do want to take a moment to encourage you to take the steps you need to become financially independent. I know they're distractions, mistakes, poisonous people, bad habits, maybe you got a bad start in life. Lots of things that may have prevented you from starting or sticking to your goals. All right. Pick something, stick with it, and do something every day that gets you one step closer. Okay. Till the next podcast or until the next meeting, crush it.